Yo, 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 what's up, Actual Eye fam? We are back. It's another episode of Actual Eye Podcast's special series, Meaning Making 101, during which we cover John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. We have so far covered 42 episodes of this series. It's a 50-lecture-long series that John Verveke released on YouTube because it was too long to release into any university. 50 lectures making up his theory on how we may help humanity awaken from the meaning crisis we find ourselves in. The meaning crisis being a term that he and others use for the existential crisis crisis our species finds itself in at this moment in history. And that is a crisis of breakdown of our associations with um, churches, with authority, um, academia, governmental, uh, whatever it may be, there's been scaling distrust in the prevailing institutions that we used to rally around to find our kind of our moral grounding together. And in that, as a result of that, we see a lot of growing division in our culture and uh, a breakdown of cohesion in our culture. And it uh, amounts to a meaning crisis, which is causing a great deep sense of meaninglessness in people all over the world. The rising depression and anxiety is indicative of that. And so uh, here we are with Professor John Verveke, a longtime Buddhist practitioner, Tai Chi master and teacher, as well as a professor of cognitive science, which is a most multidisciplinary field covering uh, many different uh, academic disciplines in the study of human consciousness from um, neuroscience to psychology, so on and so forth. So anyway, I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And we're very excited to announce that we have new mics now. We're like official podcasters now. We have our new Sure mics plugged in and rocking. We got a new camera, but I still need to get a lens for that camera. So the new camera is probably going to be coming next week, but look forward to improved production value here at Actually Podcast. We're very excited to be making these moves here and providing you guys with better quality. During the series, it's kind of a watch along. We're basically studying and learning together. We are not any great gurus or educators ourselves. We're just normal guys here trying to get a handle on how we may personally approach the crisis of meaning in our world today. So if you guys are wondering what can we do in these crazy times to help ameliorate the situation even a little bit, you're at the right place. Uh, John Verveke has been a profound teacher along this path, and we're, we're just going to do a quick recap of our previous episode. I forgot to get us live on Facebook. This is why I can't talk too much in the beginning. Oh, this is what no. happens. The Facebook is missing out. Yeah. But for those of you in podcast land, thank you so much for tuning in and staying with us during this marathon of a lecture series. Here we are live on Facebook. What's up, Facebook Ooh. fam? We are live, and we are back. And I was just talking a little bit about uh, the meaning crisis, as John Verbeke has described it, the time that we find ourselves in today of increased meaninglessness and growing division and... We're trying to find some hope out here, some actionable hope, you know, see how we can be a part of the change and help change this this world. I think the most effective way is going to be from the inside out. We're always hacking at limbs and different kinds of political actions that we make. It's like we're addressing symptoms, but we're not treating the root. And the root is 
you know, to any problem in society is within each one of us because we are what make up society. We groups of individuals. So I'm Chris, this is DJ, and we are back at it. We're going to do a quick quick recap of the last episode, episode 42 on intelligence, wisdom, and ra- rationality. And then we're going to jump on in to this next episode. So um, I guess according to Stanovic, intelligence is not sufficient um, to under you know like having high intelligence doesn't necessarily make you rational so what is it that allows for understanding and rationality um and uh this idea of um what is it active open-mindedness mm-hmm. um which should you know allow you to find formulate and solve problems yes because ultimately we're you know trying to be problem solvers um discuss curiosity and wisdom um Need for cognition, which is uh, problem finding. Um, Ar- yes. Arlen. Yeah, we learned how problem finders are very good at realizing problems and connecting things that others haven't put together yet. So, and, um, and Ar- Arlen um, stated that wisdom is central to problem finding. Yes. Right. Um, yeah, problem finding is essential to wisdom. And we're looking for a psychotechnology. That to help us develop our wisdom, and as Verbeke describes in this episode, he reminds the term psychotechnology, which we learned in the beginning of the series. A psychotechnology is a socially developed and standardized, um, systemized methodology that sustains and empowers cognition and can be highly accessible, usable by people. So it's anything that we use in our minds, any kind of set of skills and sensitivities that helps us in a generalized manner to catch our own cognitive biases. Yeah, so what makes a good problem solver? And we need to understand that problems are not found within a vacuum. So a good problem finder finds um, impactual problems for the existing problems So within a problem nexus and then finds the core problem that affects all of the That's problems right. within that nexus. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the need for cognition there's one part to it which is good problem finding um the problem nexus and then the second part to that is wonder and curiosity and wonder is a being mode phenomenon and curiosity is a having mode when you're you know in wonder you're in the experience whereas a curiosity is something that you manipulate through you know you're curious work it through you're going and finding the thing the Mm -hmm. curiosity is impelling you almost um so Socrates says wisdom begins in wonder. Mm-hmm. And so there's two interpretations. There's Plato's interpretation. The point of philosophy is to develop and extend the sense of wonder, deepening it into awe. Mm. Um, it gets us involved um, in this ascending process. It's yes. meta accommodation. It's the quest. The quest. And then Aristotle, his interpretation was uh, similar, but basically you shape wonder into curiosity to resolve the wonder mm-hmm. so it's meta assimilation and the question ah yeah you stay you know you're stabilizing the wonder um so quest and question and you know like it's not a one or the other kind of thing you know they're 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 an opponent process well i guess these so it's two, both the, happening the, these two interpretations are talking about two sides of the same coin yeah um a machine the, that the, the wonder curiosity coin you know yeah 
Yeah. So it's like at first you have the huh, wonder, and then you get curious about it, and you start to you know uh, manipulate has such a you know to find a, out. A, a bad or the other uh, way around. Yeah. You know, it, it has such a bad error about it. But you know, manipulate you you manipulate a pen when you write. You manipulate a screwdriver mm-hmm. when you use it. You manipulate your car when you drive it. You know, it's not. It's funny how in our current so- social context, our mind goes to certain well, things when you when manipulate people. That's right. when it starts to get a little... Yeah. Um, yeah. So Stanovic mm-hmm. um, had a positive account of rationality um, and this dual process. So rationality isn't just one, you know, w- one factor, one form. It's many different... Um, and the dual processing theory, there's a lot of convergence in other fields yeah. for, for this. You know, this goes all the way back to Stoicism and Platonism. But we've also confirmed this in modern age in psychology and therapy. Yeah. So the two different um, t- the two different ways of processing info we call S one and S two, right? Mm-hmm. So S one is the more intuitive. Yeah, right? the intuitive, the, the um, implicit. It's implicit processing. It's very fast. We very associative. Yeah. yeah, and it um it's very background, it's very associative and it's and it's it's compelled by coping or caring. Yeah. And so yes. then S2 yeah. is a deliberate um both reflective both reflective and aware um definition of deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um inferential. Yes. argument uh, argumentative, not like, you know, like bad of argumentative but making an argument, but theor- theoretically um yeah. explicit um and it's slower. And, it, and it's slower. And so... He gave us a good example of the lady at the line. So you get to a line, at, you're at the grocery store, and you get to the checkout counter, and you've, you know, you've got your normal amount of groceries that you buy every two weeks, right? And they're like, okay, that's going to be $1,000. And you're immediately like, what? That's S1 processing. It's very quick. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's pattern recognition. So you know automatically the approximate idea idea of how much is in that cart based off of the items you grabbed off the yeah, shelves. Yeah, it's, ba- it's based off of, well, and also... So you like, do a really quick association. And it's it, and it's based off of pre-existing heuristics. Mm-hmm. So like, it's very intuitive. Um, but but then the uh, the person checking you out is like, no, actually, you know, yeah. look on the receipt, and then they go through things one by one by one. Now they're using S2 processing, which is very deliberate. It's slower. It's inferential. It's ex- and it, explicit. It, and it's used to override. Um, it's used to a, check and S1 con- yes. in a corrective manner, too, yes. because, you know, you... Because the S1 can be wrong sometimes. Yeah. It's very useful because it's quick, but it's intuitive, and sometimes it's making the wrong inference. Yeah, so... So you, you need the S2 to, to check. Yeah, so... Uh, faster, implicit process. Stanovich has... A word for this, it's uh, dysrationalia, or mm-hmm. you could say foolishness, which it's like is dyslexia, but for the mind, basically. Yeah, and you're highly intelligent, but not training your S two um, properly. Yeah. Y- yeah, so you know, you just jump to conclusions, jump to conclusions, mm-hmm. jump to conclusions, but haven't really trained the ability to take stock of what's actually there and to check piece yourself. it together. Yeah. So you know, what is active open mindedness doing? Um. And, well, that's that's a psychotechnology that yeah. we can use to help counteract this yeah. cognitive bias that we tend to have within ourselves because we don't like to be wrong, and we take anything personally when it feels like we got something wrong. You don't need to, 
but we do that. And so if we're good at checking ourselves, we can catch when we're starting to take something personally that we don't need to. Like information's just information. You know, it's good for our opinions to upgrade mm -hmm. and change themselves when new data comes along. So we should be open. Yeah. So, you know, the, the S2 is, you know, overriding S1, but that's not, that's. Yeah. So we can't re rely on the S2 for most behavior. It's too slow. But it can't override the S1 and that opponent processing relationship, which makes us adaptive. So it does have that corrective functions, uh, function. Well, so now the, the oh, okay, you're talking about so the op um, the open mindedness. What does that the A stand for? Uh, active active open-mindedness. Open this is what helps us leap to conclusions, which can be a good thing, not just a bad thing, right? Yeah. Well, you know. Um it's not just enough to train your S2 to override S1 because we need to be able, um, I see. We need to be able to leap to conclusions. Yes. And he introduced us to this idea of cognitive leaping. Yes. Um, that's right. and, and you, you can test how well you do at this by you basically, you know, have a bunch of dots starting coming up and eventually you'll be able to see a pattern that they make, you know, in, in the case that, um, he showed us last time is a couch, you know, a bunch of patterns come up and the quicker, the quicker you can tell what it's going to be with the less, um, less cues to mm -hmm. find the pattern, the better you are at leaping. Yes. And ideally we'd want to be good leapers yes. because it's a lot quicker than just, you know, always going through mm -hmm. the receipts over and over again, which, you know, leads us to what he calls, you know, cognitive suicide. He just, you get trapped by the uh, well, what's it called? Uh, cognitive cognit explosion, cognitorial explosion, which is of all the different too, possibilities mm -hmm. and potentials that you could account for at any given time. Yeah. You got to be able to narrow down. Yeah, yeah. So that's so, so that's where the active open-mindedness comes in. It teaches us to protect our processing processing from being overrided by our capacity for self-deception. Mm -hmm. So that pattern recognition using few cues to infer properly and reliably is really helpful for us mm. to be better at leaping is to be better at insight and if we cut off the leaping entirely we lose our rationality yeah. and then of course you have the trade on trade-off relationship yeah so active open-mindedness moderates the relationship between s1 and s2 it's calibrating yeah for optimization not maximization mm -hmm. of either or you know either or um so we know. need good control yeah we need to be able to see the rationality beyond theorizing because it has existential mm -hmm. implications yeah so like in therapy you don't want to be an s2 mindset because some things you can't think your way through mm -hmm. you, you need to be able to express it and get it out to then have an insight about it yeah we need transformative so insights. you don't get rid of s2 but you background s2 yes and foreground s1 that's right yeah and um, those transformative insights they help us break the frames the improperly held frames that we may have to reform them into something more reliable to optimize our insight and rationality further. So beyond the theory, there's therapy. We can't infer, think through our way to solve a problem like yeah, you were just yeah. saying. We need to be able to shut down the S2 process and put it in the background and constrain it to foreground the S1. So mindfulness practices, meditation. Well, so a mi what a, what mindfulness is is a cognitive style, which we've discussed yes. in previous episodes. Different styles of cognition, and mindfulness is one of these cognitive styles. styles yes, and meditation is yeah. what helps you 
to develop that cognitive style within yourself. So meditation is an aspect of mindfulness yeah. that helps constrain the S2 processing to open us up to S1 mm -hmm. processing in a very powerful way because you can't improve wisdom merely by thinking and intellectualizing. Yeah. You need to expand the S2 processing, which is very intuitive. The only way to do that well, you can't exercise that the way you traditionally exercise you by like reading one. books or learning languages. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do something that allows you to be in the being mode where you're letting yeah. all the information be available at once without choosing anything to focus on so that you can take in this bigger picture, this gestalt. And that's so meditation is allowing you to be there and be yeah. aware of your thoughts as they're going by and learn to be more yeah. mindful. Yeah, so you know your S2 processing is good for planning and for truth. And S1 is good for coping, mm -hmm. you know, fitting yourself around things, not necessarily what we think of coping now, yes. but, you know. So when we need to transform and develop qualitatively, like across a generalized spectrum, we need to use the S1. Mm -hmm. We need to yeah, to increase the S1 capacity. And if, for you S2, know, it's your, that's planning. That's when you're aiming for truth yeah. and, and mm -hmm. exact exactitude. So Verveke has a critique of Stanovich's... Um, uh, we'll say uh, viewpoint on this. Um, he thinks that Stanovich needs a better account of the trade-off relationship between the two and how to optimize this opponent process that's happening mm. here. Um, mm. So intelligence can enhance um, relevance realization and that that is called uh, rationality. Yes. And you can use rationality to in improve rationality as well yes. yeah so we can use intelligence to improve how we use our intelligence yeah. and the competencies will optimize which is what rationality is using intelligence to prove upon itself so and we and we can also upgrade rationality the same way which would be crucial to advancing wisdom and we need the opponent processing practice of meta you know mindfulness practices along with active open-mindedness because the mindfulness is practicing the S1, you know, but we also need practices for our rationality to get the S2 working properly and get them both working in tandem. So a locus for understanding wisdom is for rationality and intelligence uh, to be used in tandem correctly. And I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself there. So rationality is more about the capacity to overcome self-deception and expand sense of meaning in life than intelligence alone tells us. So we have intelligence improving on itself. Yes. We've got this ABC grouping here. Oh, yeah. So what this is, what that is, is um, there's a woman, Carol, and in her book on mindset, um, she breaks down two different kinds of mindsets. One is a fixed view and one is a malleable view. And what she did is she created, she created an experiment, um, took a bunch of kids, broke them into three groups. So what she did is with the first group, she went with the trait end, the fixed trait end of, of praise. Oh, see, excuse me. The, the kids were given problems to solve that kids at their level could be able to solve. And then the difference between the three groups is how you praise them for what they did. So you have the trait was you're so smart, you're so smart. And then the ma the the malleable, and was oh you worked really hard, because you know so, so this idea of a fixed it's fixed from birth and the errors of that reveal a defect in um, 
and a non-changeable trait. So it's this permanent thing. So when you have errors, it's it's well, these errors must be a defect with me. I'm stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in the malleable and the errors point to that there's an issue with the skills or the effort that you put in. So group A, you're praised. You're so smart. This fixed. Oh, you're smart. You're you're as smart as you're ever gonna get from birth. The group B kids were told, oh man, you worked really hard. And then the group C kids got a neutral thing. Well, you succeeded on it. Well done. Yep. You know, kind of thing. So what ended up happening um, is the the kids who are praised with the fixed, when, when all the kids were asked who would want to do some slightly harder problems and do it more, those kids didn't want to do it, didn't want to participate. They're like, nah. The ones that were told that you you got this right because you're, you're so smart. intelligent. Yeah, because you're, you're smart. smart. It's fixed, and so so we gave them go- a fixed view of intelligence. Yeah. So what they're going what the, what's going through their heads is like, well, man, like that was already kind of hard, and this is about as smart as I am. So I'm gonna fail if it gets even harder. Whereas the second group of kids that were told, you worked really hard at this. I can tell. You know, you worked real yeah. hard. And the third group of kids that got the neutral both were more open to, yeah, let's, let's, yeah. you know, let's. Particularly that second group that were praised for how hard they worked. So yeah. they were praised for the process. So we have two views of intelligence the fixed view of intelligence and the malleable yeah, view. The fixed view turns any errors that we make into this idea of a permanent yeah, that's... problem. Whereas the malleable view focuses on the process. There might be a problem in the way that somebody's processing this. It might not be something that is ingrained in their intelligence. They just are processing this incorrectly. So the kids that were praised according to the process of how hard they worked were more likely to be interested in trying even harder problems. Yeah, and and with that also, they were asked, did you enjoy it? And the group one kids, not so much. Group two and three, yeah. And then when they were told to tell, uh, you know, a stranger about their feelings about these tests, group two and three told the truth, whereas 40% of group one lied about it as yep. well. So this really shows that this fixed, I, you know, this, um, oh, what's the actual term I got to, um, you know, okay, so this fixed mindset idea can be really destructive and damaging to people as yes. well. Like, you know, just to say, oh, you're you're so smart. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's a compliment, but be careful with that. Yeah. Because it's, you know, that can it's make It's the wrong them, way to you motivate. You can give a kid a compl- uh, complex. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work well if you want to motivate them to try hard things in yeah. the future. Uh, they're going to think that they just succeeded on what they succeeded on because they're already intelligent enough. And then when something hard comes along, they're not going to think, oh, I could work harder and figure this out. They'll just be like, oh, I'm not smart enough for this. That's basically what happens is you yeah. trigger that mode of thinking, and whether it's a fixed view of, of your intelligence mm-hmm. or a malleable view, and and what's and, and how you praise somebody. What's interesting is it 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 triggers you into interpreting what error is telling you differently, mm-hmm. like at the core fundamental of how you look at error. Yeah. Instead of you know. In one way, it's like, well, error tells me that I'm stupid. And on the other end, error tells me that I'm not working hard enough, but there's something I can there's do. There's something I can do. So so you're getting yeah. the idea that either you're helpless in this world mm-hmm. and you're stuck with the traits that you have, or if you work hard on something, if you try another angle, 
if you persist, yeah. you might be able to figure it out. So that, that gives you a totally different perception of reality. It's actually it's a it's a pretty standard anime trope for what is it um, shonen anime or what basically fighting animes. You will have two characters that are usually friends or frenemies or whatever you want to call it, and one of them is the pure potential kid, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever, if any of y'all have seen Hunter Hunter um, um, Gone, you know the little. Kitty's, you know, he's already really talented and kind of a freak of nature anyway, but he's always about trying harder. And even when he gets the mm. crap kicked out of him, he's he's trying to learn to figure out, like, mm. what did I do wrong? How do I get better? Whereas mm. the other guy is a guy that's good at it, smart, and more fixed was uh, Goku versus Vegeta, if you want to go Dragon Ball Z, you know? Right. And the problem that person has is now a bunch of doubt because now they're seeing the their someone friendly or their, yeah. you know their partner moving up and moving through and then eventually the character has to have the breakthrough into the yeah. valuable ah. understanding um, the fixed of, view of, of what the errors mean yeah. you know oh, not i'm a failure and i'll never be able to do it but like oh i've failed what do i need to do to remedy this problem so it seems it seems like intelligence is fixed right yeah. but it also seems like intelligence is malleable so maybe it's mm-hmm. that intelligence is fixed but rationality is highly malleable yes how how well you can use whatever intelligence you have is what's malleable so you might only have 80 or 100 iq but you could see a marked difference yeah in the seeming awareness or consciousness of 200 or 80 iq people side by side Yeah, you can make it, because of how they've learned to process and use their the intelligence that, that they have. And invite in, in in the opposite end too. You know, you could have somebody who's really smart that's a terrible problem solver because mm-hmm. well, it does seem that you can impact your own IQ. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know, it's like I don't want to confuse intelligence with being smart. I think smart as we know it is you have a baseline intelligence and then your ability to use it. A lot of what what we mean when we say someone's smart, we're often actually alluding to their wisdom and their ability to solve problems. They might not be like a great mathematician that has lots of facts memorized, but they might be really good at identifying and solving problems. Well, like, you know, the the old man sitting on the porch that's just been a country Mm -hmm. bumpkin of all of his life but seems to have a really good grasp on what life is, living a good Mm -hmm. life and all that really Mm -hmm. deep, profound stuff. Never spent any time in a, you know, like in a library reading but he knows people but knows social interaction watched changed himself you know he knows self-sufficiency he knows yes lots of skills all different kinds of skills so it's funny you know like a lot of this stuff is relatively new but the stories we've been telling for eons have characters that are moving through this from you know this you know what you know oh the hero story yeah you know the development of the hero character I, I really love this study because you see that so the first trait the kids that were told oh you you got the questions right you did so good because you guys are just so smart well they weren't as interested in trying harder problems the next group that yeah. said, wow, you guys did really good on this. You succeeded because of your hard work. Yeah. Your effort is what made this possible. I can tell you learned a lot because of the effort you put in. They're excited yeah. when they get asked, like, yeah, hey, you want to try another set of problems, ones that are a little bit harder? Instead of saying no, like the first group, they're like, yeah. They have a hunger for cognition. They enjoy the harder problems. So The interesting part in that, though, Right here, is... so we can praise the trait or we can praise the process. And well, we want to choose which mode are we trying to trigger in people when we're educating them. Yeah, and what's interesting, though, is group three, which was neutral, still were doing better off than those that were praised for their fixed trait. That's right. So it's it's showing that actually fi- a fixed trait method is 
detrimental not not yeah. worse you know just not as good as the malleable end but well, we actually like... detrimental to, yeah you have malleable end neutral neutral so malleables maybe a so little bit better you're than not you... talent being told that you don't have any self-control over this yeah but outcome. then as soon as you it's introduce neutral. that fixed state oh. as soon as you fi- put, introduce that idea that there's nothing you can do this is just how smart you are mm-hmm. that throws everything off yeah. you need to have some openness some encouragement some motivation to try and so we are literally when we're praising the trait we're disallowing children that room to to realize that oh i have my own self capacity in this yeah i have my own power and you're 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 creating a a a natural limitation now to achievement Yes. Because, um, well, if I'm this smart and I had this much trouble with it, I, I, I can't do anything harder because I already had this. See, yeah. I'm, I'm already here. I was smart I enough to get praised for being smart, but what if the next problems yeah. are harder than I can do? I don't want to lose this yeah. praise. I don't want to not be considered smart anymore, so I'm not going to try. But it's a totally different mindset mm-hmm. when you look at you accomplished this because you tried hard. That means that, okay... So there's a limit, but I'm able to increase that limit when I try harder. Yeah. When yeah, I put some yeah. effort in, all of a sudden I can go further than I thought. Yeah, as in, you know, the bar can be raised and it's good that you can raise it. Yeah. And you can keep up to the bar that's being raised yeah. for you. And the, so the bar is malleable. The bar can keep raising as long, yeah. as hard as I'm willing well, to work. Well, you can keep raising can, with the bar yeah. being raised instead of freaking out that the bar is going to be raised too high for me uh, to grasp. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There you go. That's it. Um so it, it that's that's a profound insight too. Yeah, man, you have a sense of your own self movement, your sense of your own um, upward mobility, in a sense. Yeah, because you know, like how often do we just casually, you know, tell kids or even just people, oh, you're so smart or you're so pretty or yeah, you know. Well, that takes that. Certainly, oh, you're so talented. The wonder out of the future. Yeah, and, and then it stuns them. Like instead of saying, oh, you're so pretty or you're so handsome, it's like, wow, you put yourself together really well. That took effort. That yeah. took time. That took intention. When it's the malleable mode, and you're praising the process, yeah. or you're you thinking clean to yourself, nice, "I wonder how you know? intelligent I could be." Yeah. Instead of all this is, I'm just intelligent now. I think I'm smart because someone said so. Yeah. But if something really challenging comes along, and then I automatically like always turn away from mm-hmm. it and ignore it. Now I'm just like, how smart could I possibly become? Yeah, there's, right. there's no cap. It's just about how hard am I willing to work? Yeah, and you know that's. That's probably one of the, you know, core beautiful fundamentals of Western society um, as a whole is this idea that, you know what, damn it, if I work really, really hard, I can make my chances better to have a really good life. That sounds make rational. Make that money. That's, and, and that it's because it is, the, that's the underlying key to rationality right there. That as long as, rational. you know, nobody's putting their thumbs on the scale unfairly. Yeah, you can do it. Yep. So the way intelligence recursively relates to itself is rationality. Mm-hmm. The recognition that I have a highly malleable mm-hmm. cognition and capacity mm-hmm. for engaging with life is rationality itself. The willingness to go through that exercise of that mm-hmm. self-improvement is our own rationality. This is beautiful. So 40% of the trait focus, the ones that were praised for, oh, you're so smart. You lied about their They feelings. lied about their success. When they're asked about it, when they're asked to tell someone else about it, 
Whereas the, the group that was focused on process, that was just praised for how hard they worked, they told the truth, even if they got some wrong. I don't think it was a success. It was about how they felt about it. So being honest about their feelings about the Light whole about their success. Oh, is that it? Okay. I think is what I wrote, but I could have. But, um, well, either way, you know, it's God, your feelings that. or your success lying about it. You know, it's like you could go one way and be like, oh, yeah, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't worried about it at all. Like, yeah. You know, okay. Even though they're like, yeah. man, I'm just right at the edge, man. And, you know, luckily I got through. Whereas the other kids were just like, yeah, it, it, it was tough, but, you know. But you you made an honest self-reflection, an honest self-assessment. Yeah. So that is allowing you to be more rational because you know what you still need to learn. It's kind of like. You know where your gaps are. You know where your strengths are. So how we identify with our intelligence relates to how well we can utilize it to be more rational mm-hmm. and thus more wise. So that self-honesty yep. is key as well. So it makes, yeah. you, it makes you a little bit more honest, too, when yeah. you don't have this fixed uh, cap to your growth yeah. or, well you don't even have growth in the fixed end it's just it's as smart you want to be true be. you want to know what's true and if you want to know what's true you want to be true you're yeah, going to get yeah. closer to it yeah. yeah you're going to be willing to see where you might be wrong so you're going to be able to run through those those biases and those those frames that are that are a little bit wrong and correct for them and want to do it too and feel good about doing yeah, it yeah feel good you about know, doing even it even though the process might be grueling and excruciating you at know. times yeah. yeah actually interesting and it can be that way especially with our own particularly held, closely held views when we start to self-check and challenge our own clo- most closely held views it certainly can be upsetting for us it's interesting so the military when you go through boot camp what they do is they are attempting well they used to uh, it's a little different nowadays from what i hear but they break you down into nothing you are literally worms that's that go through the dirt so then you have nothing and but you up back to up. go yeah. so they're they're removing the fixture that it is your understanding yeah i'm already in shape and i'm smart and all that no they are definitely... you are maggots groveling maggots and if you get through this you might be less than maggots grinding that ego to... down and making you build up a healthier yeah and then realize that personage. every time the bar is raised you're meeting it and then actually truly being like okay yeah i can take on the you know i, mm-hmm. I, I can take on having people shoot at me it and, helps people <laughs> to form a healthier personality yeah, yeah. and that is a humbled personality it's not coincidence that the military does this either some of the greatest psychological minds have helped design how the military trains and we've been doing this for thousands of years too yeah yeah and we've built traditions around it you know it also helps build camaraderie between people and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but you know those having but basically taking everyone with all these different levels of self-confidence and breaking them all down to the same level and then building them up together on the same on the same basis it it definitely create helps create that camaraderie Mm mm-hmm and it also helps to um, answer for a lot of the different kind of kinks in different people's egos that, you know, the different habituations that people get stuck in. Does it get rid of it completely? No. No, of but... course not. And none of, none of this stuff we're talking about is, is the be all end all solution to our problems. It's just right. helping us find the more core problems and issues and start to try to address them and do it over and over and over again so you know we can get better at doing this 
and then become mm-hmm. get better at becoming wise, if you will. Yeah, there's yeah, no maximal to, ability to get wise. It's un- not to understand ourselves. We need to understand where we've come from, where we've gone through in this human story. So, Verveke does a tremendous job of that in this series, starting back in our primordial uh, history and bringing us up to now in the modern age to understand how we develop this crisis of meaning within ourselves and then in the wider world through our societies, how we may answer for it um, within ourselves, and also how we may help remarry science and spirituality, which has been unfortunately divorced for the past couple thousand years. I think that will help us a, a great deal as well. And then to be able to create a common language through the vehicle of cognitive science to be able to talk about higher states of consciousness that our religious and wisdom traditions talk about and to be able to bring our various religious and spiritual wisdom traditions into conversation, give them a common language along with the common language they can share with science now as well. That's what Verveke has been doing and that's the the real breakthrough here. Taking the ineffable and making it affable. Make it, making it at least you know, accessible and, and, yeah. and communicable well, cause together like, like, so we can use the same language to talk about it. Well, because, you, you know, know, like something like a uh, metaphysical interaction with the DMT space el- machine mm-hmm. elves right. is not necessarily an effable thing that you can quantify, okay, and this amount. <laughs> no. But there's ways... Uh, or like you know the the feeling you get when you go to you know a church service and a huge cathedral mm-hmm. and that feeling as well that's something that you can't quantify but with this we can at least talk about what is a higher state of consciousness what is anagogy well, and then, how do how can we bring these states about what how are they useful for people ideal, why are they ideally figuring out a way to be able to measure it reliably mm-hmm. across many different you know peoples yeah. and experiences because if you want to study something you have to be able to measure it. Yeah. in one way or, an, or put a measure to it in yeah. one way or another, you know? Yeah. And for the longest time, the spiritual was not something that you could directly put a ruler to. Yeah, and this also helps um, us solve the problem of how to create AGI and do and create yeah, and, ar- artificial general intelligence that uh, is actually going to be safe and helpful for yeah, the human species. Is, that just wants it's going to gonna have to have wisdom <laughs> written into it as well, because <laughs> yeah. human intelligence without wisdom is already dangerous enough. You know, once we put that into a supercharged AI system, it's it's a whole other level of danger for our species that we don't even know how to reckon with. We just know we have to do something and do it quickly if we are going to achieve AGI at all. But even to build in any kind of wisdom to help uh, better serve the algorithms, better serve human beings at this point is, is integral. Yeah. It needs to be happening. All right, guys. Well, it's about that time. We're going to jump into it now. It's episode 43 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. If you guys are enjoying this series, make sure to go over to John Verveke's channel and smash that like and that subscribe button over there. And make sure that you like and subscribe Actualize as well if you're enjoying what we're doing here. We appreciate you guys joining us. You can always listen to this podcast on uh, Spotify, Apple, any of the major podcast platforms. It's available for you guys anytime. Without further ado, let's jump on in. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we took a look at uh, uh, the work of Stanovich and sort of culminating ideas coming out of the rationality debate. Tried to expand 
uh, the notion for you of need for cognition. Talked a little bit more about problem finding and the generation of a problem nexus. And then also the, uh, the affective component of that, wonder and curiosity, and sort of balancing them off uh, together. And then more specifically looked at Stanovich's theory of foolishness, which he calls dysrationalia. And we looked at the idea of dual processing, S1 and S2, and the idea that uh, what makes you foolish is uh, S1's uh, functioning that makes you leap to conclusions interferes with the inferential processing of S2. You leap to conclusions inappropriately, and that's what causes you to be biased in your processing, self-deceptive, foolish, etc. And then what active open-mindedness does is it foregrounds S2 and protects it from undue in, uh, interference uh, from S1. And that's all very good um, in a theoretical context. But we took a look at, work at the work of Jacobs and uh, Teasdale and said, but in a, medic, uh, sorry, in a therapeutic context, uh, the opposite is the case. Uh, what you need is you need that machinery of leaping to work well. And we took a look at the work of Baker, Senate, and CC showing that that ability to leap, cognitive leaping, is actually very uh, powerfully predictive of insight. And that's what you need in therapy. You need insight, powerful kinds of insight to break you out of the ways in which you're confronting uh, you know, existential entrapment and inertia, ignorance. And you cannot infer your way through uh, transformative, qualitative uh, change. So I proposed, and Teasdale also uh, has independently proposed this, that we need a cognitive style that foregrounds S1, puts us into a state for triggering insight, tends to background and constrain S2 processing, that inferential argumentative processing, and that's mindfulness. We, know, we have evidence that mindfulness facilitates insight, and mindfulness is also uh, increasingly being incorporated into therapeutic settings precisely for its capacity to generate cognitive flexibility and afford insight. So we're noticing that what we're needing is, right, right, because the relationship between S1 and S2 is opponent and not adversarial, we're going to need some higher order way of coordinating these two cognitive styles, active open-mindedness and mindfulness, so that we can optimize the enhancement in rationality of the relevance realization that is at the core of our intelligence. And then <coughs> took time. Uh, before we passed to <coughs> explicit theories, psychological theories of wisdoms, to note uh, this idea, right, that how you are relating to your intelligence and applying your intelligence to itself, the degree to which you problematize your own intelligence and try and improve it, we can see that as rationality. And then I suggested to you, I proposed to you the possibility that when I do this, uh, when I recursively and reflectively use my rationality to enhance and optimize my rationalities by enhancing perhaps the relationship between the component styles of mindfulness and active open-mindedness, then I'm moving towards wisdom. We took a look at that. And in connection with this, we took a look at the work of Dweck and Again, making the argument that the, the way you relate to your higher cognitive processes, your meaning-making, problem-solving capacity is not just 
intellectual or information processing, it's deeply existential. And we saw, saw the work on mindsetting and that right, the way you identify with your intelligence, the way you're framing how you're identifying with your intelligence has a tremendous impact on your need for cognition, your problem solving, your behavior, your proclivity towards deception, self-deception, etc. Okay, so we've learned a lot along the way that I think has given us a good framework with which we can critically and constructively engage with some of the, uh, I think, representative theories of wisdom. Let's remember earlier on that we already took a look at a central review of some of those theories, the work of McGee and Barber, showing us that when a, they were not trying to give a comprehensive theory of wisdom, they were just trying to find a, a central feature, and the central feature was seeing through illusion and into reality, and then we took that up as how does one get comprehensively, reliably, systematically better at dealing with self-deception, and that's how we got into the rationality debate, and that's how we're here. So we, we've done a lot to unpack that intuition. Um, well, it's more than an intuition. It's a conclusion of the argument, the very careful argument made by McGee and Barber, that at the core of wisdom is what I would argue is, is rationality, the systematic and reliable ability to overcome self-deception. Now let's take all of this, and as I said, let's put it into dialogue with some existing theories. The first theory I want to take a look at um, isn't a comprehensive theory of wisdom, but nevertheless, um, it's instructive because it brings up some core components of the theory of wisdom, and it does something uh, that's exemplary, something we need to uh, consider. It discusses the relationship between wisdom and virtue, which is an idea that's taken up explicitly by one of uh, the core theories of wisdom, which is uh, the work of Boltz and Staudinger, known as the Berlin Paradigm. But before we do that, in order to examine the connection between wisdom and virtue, I want to take a look at the work of Schwartz and Sharp. And Schwartz and Sharp, and it's 2006, is the main article. Uh, later on, uh, there was a book written, I think 2010, called Practical Wisdom, uh, which is much more extensive, but I'm, I'm relying on this article because I think that was uh, a sort of clear and concise presentation of the argument. The, ar the article is called uh, Practical Wisdom, Aristotle Meets Positive Psychology. Um, of Aristotle you know about, and he's been invoked and discussed repeatedly. The positive psychology, you remember we talked about this when we were talking about 4E uh, uh, cognitive science. Remember what positive psychology is about. Positive psychology is the idea that we should study the mind not only how it breaks down into its parts, we should also study it in terms of how it excels as an integrated system as a whole because that excellence, that excelling beyond can often reveal powers and principles at work within our mind that normal cognition and pathological cognition do not reveal. So, positive psychology studies states that are considered excellent. Now, what Schwartz and Sharp are interested in is they're interested in uh, some work done by Peterson, not Jordan Peterson, another Peterson. Peterson and Zeligman 
uh, where they're discussing virtue. And they're discussing virtue, of course, as a form of human excellence. And so they study, uh, they list a, a bunch of virtues. And Schwartz and Sharp sort of stand aside from that, and they note some difficulties with this idea, this list of virtues. You know, that you should be honest, you should be courageous, uh, right? things like that. Notice what we have here. The, the presentation of the virtues carries with it the strong implication that they're logically independent from each other. Or to use language you're familiar with, what we're given is a feature list of virtues. We're given a feature list of virtues without any indication of how they relate to each other. And see, in fact, there seems to be the assumption that they're logically independent from each other. A very questionable assumption. right? And instead, what we should be looking for is a feature schema. We should be looking for a structural functional organization uh, that helps to explicate and explain how virtues uh, relate to each other. So it's important to note that the feature list carries with it the implication that what you should simply do is maximize each virtue. And, and right away, that tells you an inadequacy of the feature list. I mean, if I maximize honesty, if I'm always as honest as I can possibly be, I will at times be cruel. I will have given up on kindness. Right? If I meet people and say, oh, I, I need to tell you, you're looking uglier than you did yesterday. I need to tell you that because it's being honest, maximally honest, right? We don't think of that person as being excellent. We think of that person as being an asshole, right? And so that's important. That's important right away to notice that we're not trying to maximize the virtues. We're trying to get some optimal relationship between them. And the ancients had, a, at least the ancient Greeks, had a very uh, stronger version of this. They had the idea that the virtues were actually significantly interdependent with each other. And there's two ways in which they could be interdependent. They could form a, an interdependent system, or they could all be different, different versions of some core ability. Um, I, I, I might come back to that if I have time, but I want to get into the core argument. So the, the core argument is, right, we should talk about the relationship between the virtues. And as soon as we do that, we can see some important um, issues coming to bear. So what they do is they, they talk about a couple of situations in which we can see virtues in conflict with each other. So one example they give is, well, an ex example that relates to something I just said. They give the example of uh, you're, you're a bridesmaid, and right, time is running out, and you're with um, the, the bride, or at least the intended bride. Um, what's the metaphysical status before the wedding? Are you a bride? Are you like a potential bride? I don't know. Anyways, they're with that person, and right, they're trying on wedding dresses, and time is running out, and right, they're asking you, well, how do I look? And if you, it, it, like, so you, you, you're caught between, you know, being honest, being kind, and being helpful, right? You could, you could just be totally kind. You look wonderful. Oh, you're beautiful. That might not, that's might maybe not the right thing to do, right? You could be honest. You look ugly. It's hideous, 
right? There's such a mistake. Or you can try to be helpful, like we should, we're running out of time. Um, but then what do you say? And how do you balance them all? Do you just give up honesty? Do you just lie? No. Do you give up honesty, uh, kindness? Are you just brutal? No. Do you forget that you're trying to be helpful and you're under time constraints? No. What do you do? Right? The, another example they give is, right, this is the one that's put to me, you're grading an assignment for a student. Right? Now this is, the student has, you know, they, they've made terrific progress. They've really overcome some barriers. They've gone from like, you know, a, a low C and they've been improving and they're getting into a high B. Now if I grade this, if I try to grade this paper as completely objectively as I possibly can, there's a good chance that that feedback will stop that arc, will stop that growth, and the person will remain a B student. But if I, if I just give them a little bit of encouragement, if I, if I extend it, and is this lying? Because what, I'm, what am I doing with marking? Am I marking what they've done? Or if I mar am I also simultaneously indicating what they can do? So if I give them a little bit more, if I push them into the A range, that might actually, like in a self-fulfilling prophecy, lift them into an A student. And what's my moral obligation here? Is my moral obligation to give them brutally objective truth? Or is my, brutal, is my moral obligation to make them and afford them to be the best student they can possibly be? What do I do? What do I do? OK, what these dilemmas make clear is that the virtues are not independent from each other. And we're not trying to maximize between them. We're trying to optimize between them in an important way. Now, this brings up some Im Im very important issues. Right? So what it brings up is it brings up some, when we take a look at the dilemmas, we start to see some important, these issues of conflict, we start to see some important things about our relationship to the virtues. Let me read a quote from you. Real life situations do not come labeled with the needed virtues or strengths attached. Notice, notice how this is the categorization, the demonstrative reference, and, uh, and right, all the stuff we talked about. And notice how they, they zero right in on it, because notice what they say next. There is thus the problem of, here it is, and the, this word is emphasized in the original, there's the problem of relevance, which is the relevant virtue to bring to bear. And then, of course, not only is that, so you see that. Do I bring honest, is honesty the relevant virtue in these examples? Is mentorship the relevant virtue? Guidance, good guidance? Is kindness, is being helpful, like what's the, what are the relevant virtues? And of course, what's also shown is the virtues can conflict with each other. They often pull you into different kinds of behavior. Different kinds of behavior. Now let's bring another thing back. We often, and this is something that Schwartz and Sharp are, are going to make a lot out of, we often represent virtues with rules. We've talked about this when we talked about rules. 
Remember, and I, right? Remember this rule, and it's this is a uh, a virtue rule. Be kind. Do you remember the problem with that? Right. That rule doesn't specify its conditions, it doesn't specify, this is the problem of specification, it doesn't specify its conditions of application. Being kind to my son is not the same thing as being kind to my partner. It's not the same thing as being kind to my students. It's not the same thing as being kind to my friends. It's not the same thing as being kind to a stranger. It's not the same thing as being kind to a stranger on the street and being kind to a stranger, somebody I've just met at a funeral. These are all different. Remember that? That's why you can't capture relevance, your cognitive commitment in a rule, because you just have, you'd have to just get an ever-expanding penumbra of rules for how to apply and specify that rule. Rule application, specification, depends on relevance realization. In fact, unlike Schwartz and Sharp, I think all the problems they list, right, the problem of relevance is clearly a problem of relevance realization. The problem of conflict is a problem of determining which is more important, right? And the problem, as I've just argued, of specification is also a problem of determining relevance. I would add, so th they specify these three interconnected problems, as I've argued, relevance, conflict, and specificity. I would add a fourth that they don't talk about. And this has to do with the fact that sometimes the best response to a situation is to realize that I need to develop a virtue that I do not have. What's up? We are back. All right, let's do a quick review over the first 20 minutes we just viewed, 20-ish. So we're talking about... Uh, so it's... Um, relationship of wisdom and virtue. McGee and Barber. Um... Well, there are Schwartz and Sharp. Well, so before that, though, McGee and Barber stated that the core of wisdom is rationality. Oh, yeah. And then we got into theories of wisdom, and theory one being from Schwartz and Sharp, mm -hmm. uh, and a article in 2006 uh, called Practical Wisdom, Aristotle Meets Positive Psychology. Psychology. Uh, psychology. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, that that's all like me. Yeah. And, my and then there's a book as well, Practical Wisdom. Yeah, which was 2010, I think. But so the idea of, of behind the book, behind the research, was to study how it excels, how wisdom excels, not just to understand the parts of it. So we're looking at studies that have considered excellence. Yeah, and excellence in the sense of going, um, I guess, uh, going past the norm. Um, Whereas like negative psychology is what goes wrong and how does it break? Mm -hmm. This is how how does it go past its normal state and continue? Yeah, so, so so states of excelling. Uh, well, that's not just understanding just the parts and the features of those states, but how is that person or that trait excelling in that circumstance in that situation? Yeah. And so virtue can be seen as a form of excellence, something that goes past um, beyond. Um, and, uh, we'll say norm, an out, an yeah. Out, yeah, beyond the norm. So out, you know, you can say outward, you know, excel exterior. Mm -hmm. you know, there might be, might be something about the, you know, so, something with that. But um, so, virtue is a form of excellence. So, so rather than looking at virtue 
as a with a feature list. Yeah, it's not a it's not a feature list of you know like uh, well D- different traits that add up to yeah. So I think excellent Schwartz and Sharp's argument against the feature list, uh, looking at the virtues as a feature list because it doesn't show the relationship between the features between the different virtues that make up like that state of excellence. Yes. So we need we need a structural organizational structural functional organization. Yeah, and a, a schema. A scheme, uh, uh, yeah, you know, um, so to be our f- foundation to understand this, and so the feature list implies there's a maximization of the virtues. You need to maximize any one of the virtues, you know. Yeah, um, and if you just maximize the the virtues, then you're going to get the excellence that you're looking for. But it doesn't work that way. No, because, because if you're too honest, you're an asshole. Exactly. So an interpersonal, yeah. you know, co- you know, communication and mm-hmm. you know, life situations we find ourselves in. Um, like the bride argument that he gives us, you know, the bride's trying on the dress. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you going to be a hundred percent honest, a hundred percent kind, or a hundred percent helpful? And what you got to find is a kind of a marriage of the three of those. Yeah. You, you, you know, you don't want to be completely honest all the time. Yeah. Like he, you know, he says, you know, if someone's not looking particularly good one day, you know, you don't tell them that they look ugly. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like. Yeah. Well, How honest do you want to be? Sometimes it, you know, you're gonna be like, "Yo, bro, you look, there's like, a way. You look like shit." What's going on? <laughs> you know, like there's a way to put it though. Depending on the relationship, you yeah, know, it's like what he was talking about with be kind. What do you mean, like kind, like to my lover, kind to my father, the kind to a stranger? Like, what it's do you mean? Different right? depending on the relationship. Yeah. So that's that's where you have um, problems that arise that you can observe um, through observing the relationships of the virtues to each other that's what we want to do and that's yeah. that's what peterson and zeligman figured out is that we want to we're not trying to maximize the virtues themselves but create an optimal relationship between these different virtues of, of you know virtues such as kindness honesty helpfulness what have you yeah and, and just so drop... we should talk about that relationship between them to understand yeah. how that excellence is just dropping one of them out like say you know like well i don't want to be too honest because i don't want to break her heart and tell her that her butt looks big in that dress mm-hmm. so i'm just going to be kind and helpful well if you drop out the honesty part you're also not being helpful because they were asking your opinion yeah there's a relationship between being honest and the helpfulness of it and being kind and the helpfulness of it and to be yes. helpful what does that mean like it's, it's got to be useful it, knowledge is the, it's be do you good, just good want info. her to feel like the best looking bride ever and whatever and that might be so like yeah. what you know which one do you yeah, foreground the, because the virtues will. can't conflict and they can pull us into different kinds of behavior so yeah which one do you want to how do you want to balance these different uh considerations so you know so we need to optimize not maximize real life situation for real life situations and and try to figure out you know what moral obligations do we have Mm -hmm. um yeah there's the problem of relevance because our real life situations don't come labeled with the virtues that are needed attached to them so we we do have to recognize what is the relevant virtue to bring to bear in any Mm -hmm. given situation so and we often we often represent virtues with rules and there's a problem there rules don't specify the conditions that you you know we're applying and like you were saying mm-hmm. you know there's a different kind of kindness that you're going to have with your boys versus yeah. with your you know your 
your mate or your kids or your grandparents or whatever. It's, well, imagine this, you know, like say you have a daughter and you just come up to her and pitch her cheek and just say, you are just the cutest thing on the planet. You might not want to do that to your wife. <laughs> you you might at some certain point be able to do that to your mom and just pinch her cheeks and, you know, have her get flustered at you. But see, you know, um, like we talked very early on in this whole series, you know, what is relevant. And we gave the example of the fire. If you ain't got no family or any pets, people in the house is not the first thing. You know, it's like your paperwork. Yeah. Uh, yeah maybe, you know, your guitar, uh, your PlayStation. <laughs> Sorry, I'm singling out. But it's amazing how we have this cognition, yeah. this capacity within us that we have termed relevance realization here yeah. with the Verbeke has provided this term for us that allows us to narrow in and focus in on what is relevant in any mm -hmm. given moment immediately. Yeah. And so since virtue, you know, with this rule thing, you can't really ru rule a vir virtue, you know, and he gave the example, be kind. Be well, kind. that's yeah. not specific enough. It's not. And then it's like, well, then, you know, to your mom or be kind to your dad or this, that, or the other, you'll never be able to write sub rules for it because it's combinatorially explosive. You just get more and more and more. The only and more one and more. word answer we have for that is be loving because that at least is telling us to be considerate yeah. and to look at something deeply and to give it a, a full well, reflection. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we have. It gives you an orientation at least that you can take on. So it's relevance. Which one of these virtues is most relevant at the time? Right. How do virtues that all share a certain amount of relevance conflict with each other? Mm -hmm. How can we be very specific about it? Because you can't, you know, write the rule, just be kind. Now, but because it's not specific enough, so you've got to be specific. So therefore, yeah. you can't just make a rule that you live by and yeah. be fine. Yeah. And so then, how are we going to create maxims to guide ourselves yeah. that are a little bit more reasonable? Yeah, and that, that these were the three that they gave us, and then... Verveke argued for then the, putting in a fourth and paying attention mm -hmm. to the development. Yes. And, and, and developing how we develop your it. system of virtues and how you work with them. And that's why we've looked at these ancient mystery mm -hmm. schools, these ancient wisdom schools of spiritual systems throughout history to see what's worked before and also to look at why we're becoming refascinated with them. Because while we're having a meaning crisis and a breakdown of society, at the same time, we're also having a refascination in the ancient wisdom of ascension, of self-transcendence, of self-realization. So there's this great interest in Stoicism and Buddhism and other ancient wisdom traditions here in the West now that has been growing. And that's been growing for a reason, it seems, that somehow innately, unconsciously, we as a species in large gr groups, even as large as our own nations, whole societies, we're starting to recognize something's getting off. I need... A deeper answer and it's for funny. how to compo comport myself to the world today and it's funny you know like how, how it came to the united states um it if you look back on it that you know the hippies and the mystics and all that in the united states they, they were they were silly they were like silly kids having fun and running around yeah but that makes sense though because they're developing these like mm -hmm. personalizing them and you start out with a, By know, and a large, growing understanding as the babe, and then you grow up through it. And now, you know, I'm seeing a, you know, quite sophisticated adulthood, uh, you know, adult college level, if you will, look at this idea of ascending as a person and becoming more virtuous. By fact that we have professors like Verveke and other people that are very seriously taking, you know, taking this, taking this endeavor yeah. and 
you know, putting it out there for the world. You know, it's a lot more serious. It's, you know, not as silly and running around in the sun and, you know, well, banging and taking drugs and dropping out and, talk, right. you know, going to India and having that experience and then doing all that because that's what you do when you're a kid. You're just, yeah, I'm not mm -hmm. saying the taking drugs thing, but, you know kids made their own drugs you just spin around in circles and then go, you go out you experiment <laughs> uh, you, but, do, yeah. you do crazy shit and crazy well, stuff and... that that leads me to have some hope because then eventually if we keep doing this right we'll come to the sage level and i think our our species will probably have a much better time at stabilizing itself at the more sage level Hopefully. understanding of human yeah. ascension and it does feel like there's a little bit more sophistication in the approach today, like you were saying in the 60s, there's a lot of joy and fun and newness to it. There weren't that many serious players in the wisdom game, but there were a few. Well, even, but now you have quite a larger number more now. It's where we can't track them anymore, and we're not holding them up kind of as like stars of like Jiddu Krishnamurti's and Ramana mm -hmm. Maharshi's and Albert Einstein's. Mm -hmm. and the few like people that kind of were shining particularly bright Um that we can think of like off the top of our heads yeah but the light is just as bright it's just diffused there's across more a broader surface i think now yeah. of very serious thinkers that are also deep practitioners of mindfulness mm -hmm. practices of some sort whether they're deeply uh, religious i think the internet really helped with that or too, they're deep, deeply spiritual in some other fashion but they're also serious thinkers mm -hmm. on the, you know at once yeah and we've needed that to happen again in our world because we have been hungering for wisdom it's like we have the technology of of gods without the wisdom of gods yeah right you know the daniel schmachtenberger quote there well we might just very well in a very short period of time create you know lowercase g gods mm -hmm. god um with our internet system and ais and once we get to a distributed general uh, artificial or artificial general intelligence I mean, that's that's game changing. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I feel that what Verbeke's put his finger on is the most urgent matter of our day that helps us to solve for other. This is the problem that helps solve for the other problems. This is developing a really great problem nexus for our species right now, basically. Yeah. This is where the problem is. If you can solve this problem, it's going to ripple out and affect everything else and help improve everything else. Yeah, and and so the, if we can't solve this meaning crisis and this this complex disjointing and fragmentation that's occurring across our various societies across the planet, and it's happening all over the world right now, we're seeing a breakdown of our understanding of our connection with reality, with one another, with our idea of what is God, how does one serve and live honestly, and what is goodness in, in this world today? All of these questions are up in the air. And we're having to nail them back down and recapitulate our understanding of our relationship with that great mystery this, this, of this existence, this life we find ourselves in. We're having to re-understand all of that together right now and then individually within ourselves to find a way to relate with this world as we're going through this time of increasingly rapid change. And like you were just saying with AI, with all the great problems that we face, and there's a term, the meta crisis, for the myriad, for the many existential life-threatening crises that face our species that are occurring at once and that are inter-penetrating uh, and, and uh, 
interacting and ex- exponentiating one another. And, and so words are funny. When we say problem, there are problems that are crises that are bad things. But then there are, say, like what Verveke's doing with this 50-part lecture series is he is problematizing for us so we can mm-hmm. see what the components are because a problem isn't necessarily something that's bad. Like a math problem isn't bad. You know, figuring out how to get the angles right on a house that you're building. Yeah, this is kind of bad. just what's happening. This is part of our human well, evolution. It, I think a problem is a set of conditions and constraints, knowns and unknowns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And components all working together that can be organized to be understood. And then there Like are... a puzzle in a Zelda game. And you know, we got our problems as a human species, and some of them oh, are, definitely... some of them are what we, you know, colloquially call blah, that word. Got some things that we could call some bad problems. Bad, bad problems, yeah. like a bad thing, but not you know, like problem. You know, just be a problematizer. Figure out how to put things in a form. You know, yeah, a formula. But you, you it really out, can through them. help take the the weight out of this whole thing, and by taking this zooming back telescopic view of reality and being like oh that's right we are a self-aware species that has grown out of a somehow living planet that finds itself rotating around this giant burning ball of plasma that we call a star and there's trillions countless of, of those more out there in infinite space as far as we can see we have some understandings of the makeup of the particles in the universe but no explanation as to how the thing could have possibly begun besides the point of a big bang maybe but what came before or why it's here we have no answers for we any of this we don't even stuff. know why like say like why an electron does but we know that this is a mi- this is like a miracle yeah. what we use the word miracle for is whatever's happening here is very special and remarkably rare as far as we can tell and it's happening, and here we are, experiencing life together, entertaining one another with our music and our art and our film and our creations. And we have a set of conditions that there is a challenge for our species ahead of us. And there are, you could say, some bad aspects as far as undesirable outcomes and events that can occur. Um, but... It is helpful to put the whole thing in in that beautiful cosmic perspective to realize that it's also a moment of great potential. Mm. As as much as there is a lot of darkness in our world and our current times and our view of the future, you know, our obsession with dystopia, dystopian film and dystopian movies, you know, I mean, it's it's everywhere and it's it's there for a reason. You know, we started out with the first episode of this talking about our fascination with zombies. Mm and end-of-the-world scenarios and our storytelling. And it is there for a reason, to help us understand how we cope with these kinds of situations because they are perennial problems. They're recurring issues that do continually come back. But, um, you know, you just reminded me that when you looked at your phone there that we are rattling on. We should yeah, jump yeah, back yeah. in before we get carried away here, guys. So uh, let's let's do that. We're jumping back in. It's episode 43 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on Wisdom and Virtue. Follow along. Here we go. It's an aspirational response rather than a select. I don't, which of my virtues should I apply? Or there come, how do I specify it? It might be, oh, geez, I'm lacking a virtue that I need. I need to cultivate a virtue that I do not have. 
So I would add in, right, the, the, in addition to the problem of relevance, conflict, and specificity, there's the problem of development, the need to aspire to acquire virtues you do not have. And I've already shown you how much that developmental process is dependent on capacity for insight and qualitative transformative experience, etc. All right. So what are they proposing? They're proposing that we need a higher order. So here's the virtues, right? We need a higher order ability that deals with relevance. They put it as a list, but I've tried to show you how they're related, right? Conflict, specificity, specification, sorry, development. Well, what would that be? Well, they argue that's wisdom. They argue that that's wisdom. Wisdom is what you need. Notice what the argument they're making here. Given the fact that they are not logically independent, given that in very many situations, right, all of these issues are brought to bear, and I'm arguing, and I think it's fair, that this is, it centers on the ability to determine relevance, right? You need wisdom in order to be wise. Right? In fact, one of the interpretations of the, Greek, uh, the ancient Greek idea of the interdependence of the virtues is not that the virtues are all constraining on each other, but that each virtue is just a particular way in which you're wise in a situation. Right? So to be kind is how to be most wise in this situation. To be honest is how to be most wise in that situation. So that version of the interdependence of the virtues really, really tightly ties the virtues to wisdom. Either way, there is a deep connection between the cultivation and the pursuit of a virtuous way of life and the cultivation of wisdom. Now, this is where Schwartz and Sharp, and this is why their book is entitled Practical Wisdom, and that's why uh, the title of the article is Practical Wisdom, because they call back to Aristotle's distinction, right? This is the distinction between Sophia, which is in Philosophia, and Phronesis. Right. Both of these words can be translated as wisdom. This is often translated as theoretical wisdom, and, this, and, and then that becomes problematic because that's often assimilated to our idea of theoretical knowledge, and then we lose a lot of what Sophia is. Right? And then phronesis is often translated as practical wisdom. So what Schwartz and Sharp want to argue is that phronesis is what you need for virtue. Phronesis is the ability to be very contextually sensitive, to exercise good judgment, to know what to do in this situation. So it overlaps very considerably with uh, you know, the relationship between pre procedural knowledge, knowing how to do various things, knowing how to be honest, knowing how to be kind, and perspectival knowing, a situational awareness of what is best fitted here, what is most appropriate for here. Right? 
And so you can see clearly why phronesis is relevant. And, and one of the things they, um, they argue, which is very interesting, is they really resist, and I think appropriately, trying to understand phronesis as having rules. So here they're very sort of critical of a Kantian idea of being, virtue, uh, being virtuous as sort of uh, specifying as, uh, your whether or not this is Kant's view, um, I, it's not something I'm going to get into. This is certainly a view that many people have, that the point, the way in which you are virtuous is to have a set of rules, moral commandments, and that you follow those rules as best you can. Uh, and then what... And what that can lead to, and Schwartz has been critical of this elsewhere in some talks you can find on YouTube, for example. This has been, this has been sort of, right, this can lead to the attempt to try and legislate everything, to try and specify everything in term of how we should behave in terms of rules. And they're critical of that because... Uh, first of all, it's impossible. Notice the example of be kind. If I try to make a law that we should be kind, then I have to make laws about uh, all these different in ways in which I specify being kind. I'd have to make laws that tell me when I should give uh, preference to kindness over honesty across all possible... Like, it's just... It's impossible. Right? Uh, but you can get into an illusion, uh, this is part of Schwartz's, that you can somehow replace people becoming wise with people having laws. Now, obviously, I am not proposing anarchy, like that we shouldn't have laws or et cetera like that. That's not Schwartz's point. He's not proposing that. That's absurd. What he's proposing is to step back and realize that we should have right, this balance between proposing legislation and, and requiring from people that they cultivate wisdom. Okay, so he's making that argument, and I think that's something that we should take into account. We should ask ourselves, right, not just will this legislation reduce harm, that's a really important question, okay, for sure, but we should also, and I think this is also an important question, will this legislation tend to make people less likely to pursue the cultivation of wisdom and virtue? Okay, so you have, to, you have to think about that, uh, is, 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 is Schwartz's argument. And I think that's an argument that should be taken seriously. And that's why, of course, he keeps making it. And, he, and he's getting a, a, a considerable audience around it. All right, okay, let's go back to the main point. They tend to leave this out because they tend to associate Sophia, I think, unfairly with the having of, the having of rules. They assimilate it, I think, too much to theoretical knowledge and the possession of propositions. Of course, rules are propositions. You're proposing what people should do, proposing very strongly, right? And they see Sophia as theoretical knowledge, largely propositional. I, I, I think that's an unfair uh, representation of Sophia, and other people have pointed that this out. And so, whereas I think, look, this is about being very contextually sensitive. And that's very important because that allows me to generate the process needed in this situation. I need to start behaving you know, in this sort of balance between being kind and honest, right? But 
I also need this. And I th instead of thinking of this as rules in the possession of propositions or, or uh, uh, sort of analogous to the Kantian model, let's think of this instead as right, the awareness of principles. So phronesis is about getting you right, into a process, the contextual sensitivity, the, 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 the perspectival situational awareness, activating the right procedures in the appropriate way so that I fit the situation. Right? That's great. But I also need a cross-contextual sensitivity. I need to pick up on things that are generalizable across different contexts. Right? And, and of course, that is partially what we're trying to do with our laws, hence, that, hence the connection. But to reduce this to just the ability to generate propositional knowledge, I think, is a mistake. That's not what Sophia is. Sophia is something like a deep kind of ontological depth perception. It's to be able to see deep underlying principles. Because what I need to know, really, and this was Aristotle's point, right? I need both of them. I need to know how to put principles into processes, and I need to know how to regulate processes with principles. That's what it is to put a principle into practice and to practice in a principled manner. So I would argue against Schwartz and Sharp that you need both Sophia and Phronesis. You need something that is trying to pick up on cross-contextual um, invariance, and you need something that is uh, designing, helping you to, and of course, this is in line with the relevance realization model, I've argued, something that is the aspect of wisdom that is about contextual sensitivity, what's different here, what's special here, how do I fit myself to this specific situation, as opposed to how do I generalize across these many situations. And what I want is an opponent relationship between them, so that I can discover powerful principles and put them into effective practice, and so that I can regulate my practices with well-justified principles. So I think that that's a very crucial issue. There's one other issue about uh, Schwartz and uh, uh, Sharp that I want to come back to. I think they're right in saying that phronesis is a kind of know-how, procedural knowledge. I think it, it's, it's more, it's also perspectival and um, potentially participatory, but at least perspectival. And one of the things they do is they, tr they talk about this in terms of the language of expertise, of being an expert, which is different. To, and, and, and what they're trying to do with that contrast is, right, an expert doesn't necessarily possess the best theory. They, right, they don't have the no knowledge that. Uh, the expert has the best no know-how. Expertise is a kind of excellence in know-how. I think because they've sort of not, uh, because they've focused in on phronesis separate from Sophia, and they've thought of know-how without thinking also of the perspectival knowing, I, th I think this is a mistake. Uh, here's why. I, I think that expertise, well, I'm trying to be careful here. There's a way in which this we can, be, we can equivocate with this word. We can just mean that we can, what we sometimes use this to mean just good, like, you know, excellent, you know, that's what expertise is. Um, and that's a very loose way of talking. But if you're trying to use it within, psycholo within psychology in a more precise manner, expertise is a domain specific thing. 
And we've talked about this before. Right? So I can become a tennis expert. I, my know-how can rise to a level of authority. And notice that my being an expert in tennis, we've done this before, but let's do it again. My being an expert in tennis doesn't give me any special authority over squash. In fact, my expertise in tennis can dramatically interfere with my playing squash. So t typically what happens in expertise is it tends to be very domain specific, which is precisely why you can get very focused training on it and become very good at like tennis. Here's my, my problem with understanding phronesis and therefore also the relationship with virtue on the model of expertise. The domain specificity of expertise, if we're using the term carefully, is not what I need here. Right? It's not what I need. And you're saying, ah, but phronesis is context sensitive. Yes, it is. And, and perhaps that's the source of the confusion. Being context sensitive isn't the same thing as being having expertise. And you say, but that sounds similar. Well, let's pull it apart, right? What phronesis is, and so let's do this very carefully, phronesis is not like expertise in tennis, which I can only apply here. And in fact, if I try to transfer it to something even similar, it will interfere. I would argue that what phronesis is, is my ability to be sensitive in this context, and sensitive in this context, and sensitive in this context. And that is very, very different. That is very, very different from expertise. Right. So what we need is a domain general ability. Now, this is not a contradiction. Your ability to be contextually sensitive is itself a domain general ability. I have to be able to be contextually sensitive in many different domains. And so I'm arguing that there's a bit of confusion here. And if you pull it apart, what we need is an ability right, to be contextually sensitive, but in a domain general way across many domains. So you know, I think things like, well, intelligence and rationality, or I would argue the ability to realize relevance, which always has a contextually sensitive component to it, are much better ways of understanding phronesis than expertise because this, those ways of talking are domain general. They have, each one of them has an aspect that is the domain general ability to be contextually sensitive here and here and here. And that's important because you know what? You're not foolish generally in a domain specific way. Specific domains may make you more foolish, but we all wonderfully <laughs> have the ability to be foolish in almost every domain of our life. Often many domains simultaneously in a disastrous chaos. Right. So I would argue that we shouldn't confuse that phronesis is about context sensitivity with expertise, which is locked to a particular domain. We should think of something much more like intelligence, rationality, relevance, realization, which can apply across multiple domains, make you a general problem solver, and deal with the domain generality of your capacity for foolishness. And so I think 
my two main response, I, so let's draw this together. The argument for the connection between wisdom and virtue, I think, is very powerful. Solid argument. The argument that that should make us more hesitant to trying to capture uh, wisdom just with rule, sorry, virtue just with rules. I, I'm, I think that's that's an argument I'm sympathetic with. I, I think that's going in the right direction. The argument that uh, phronesis is all we need for virtue, I question. I think, uh, following Aristotle, that phronesis and Sophia should be in a uh, very powerful opponent relationship. You know, trying to get principles into processes and processes regulated by principles, etc. And the idea of trying to capture the procedurality of phronesis with the notion of expertise, I think, is, 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 is a confusion, as I've argued. And we should put that uh, aside. OK, I now want to pick up on one of the, I, I, I mean, I think this is a fair way of saying it, one of the seminal theories uh, psychological theories of wisdom. In many ways, this theory turned the investigation of the psychological investigation of wisdom into an experimental empirical uh, process. And so this is the important work of Baltz and Staudinger. called the Berlin Wisdom Paradigm. They're both working in Berlin. Obviously, they're German. And so what I want to do is go to their, it's, you know, it's always hard to, to tell you what to refer to, because their work shows up in multiple articles, uh, multiple handbooks on wisdom. Um, but the article, I think, that many people regard as sort of uh, the seminal one is an article entitled uh, Wisdom as a Meta-Heuristic Yielding... Uh, sorry, uh, I'm, I'm getting the wrong quote here. Uh, sorry, here, I just want to get into it. Uh, Wisdom, a Meta-Heuristic Pragmatic to Orchestrate Mind and Virtue Towards Excellence. Okay, so sorry for that little delay. Uh, wisdom, a meta-heuristic, and then in brackets, pragmatic to orchestrate mind and virtue towards excellence. So, so notice right here, uh, uh, the title tells you that they've accepted, deeply accepted, the, the point by, uh, made by Schwartz and Sharp that there's a deep connection between wisdom and virtue. Uh, orchestrating mind and virtue towards excellence. There's already the deep connection to positive psychology. But also notice something. The invocation of the term a meta-heuristic and the notion of pragmatic tells us that relevance realization is playing a very significant role in this theory. At least I will argue that. Okay. So Let's, first of all, 
deal with this notion that they put in brackets of pragmatic. Because they're sort of picking up on a couple different related but not identical meanings associated with that term. One is um, having to do with, I think, like the pragmatic aspects of language, pragmatics. Um, so there's syntax, semantic, uh, semantics, and pragmatics. And we talked about this when we talked about Grice and conversational implicature, right? That you always are conveying much more than you're saying, and that how that uh, depends on uh, capacity for relevance realization. And you can see, and so there's that sense of that dealing with how much uh, our communication and more broadly our cognition goes beyond what we can directly uh, uh, propositionally represent. That's definitely there. There's another meaning of pragmatics, and that has to do with pragmatism, which I haven't talked about. I'm going to talk about it later uh, when I talk briefly about James. <clears throat> and, and so the idea behind pragmatism is, <laughs> so sorry, I, I, like I said, there's, a, there's so much there. But the idea about pragmatism, I would argue, a way of understanding it at least a way of understanding James. James is one of my heroes. Um, James was both a great psychologist and a great uh, philosopher. Um, and he was interested, so he's kind of a proto-cognitive scientist, and he, but he isn't interested just in cognition. He's interested much, very much in you know, what it is to live a good life. He, he starts some of the earliest work on you know, the, the study of mystical experiences and, and uh, religion psychological investigation. So he's, a, he's, a, he's just a, a, a really pivotal figure for me and for, for many people. But one way I would argue is what, what James was on about is that you should evaluate your knowledge claims ultimately in terms of their efficaciousness, how much they can be viably used in your life in order to adapt you uh, to the world. And so one one way of thinking about this is your propositional claims ultimately have to be grounded in your procedural abilities. I, I, James doesn't use this language, but I, I'm, I could find passages in James that clearly point to it, I would argue, that your, you know, your, your, your propositional knowing has to be grounded in your procedural abilities, which have to be grounded in your perspectival, which have to be grounded ultimately in your, your participatory uh, James was very interested in the phenomena of conversion when people go through these massive identity changes and how that changes the world that they can live in. Um, now, I think that's deeply right, uh, um, but there are also some problems with pragmatism. Uh, I'll come back to this, so I'll just mention it now. I think there's a, a, a confusion, of, or at least a potential confusion, between truth and relevance, and, and that can be problematic. Now, why does all of that matter? Well, because, as I've just tried to show you, pragmatism tries to situate your, what James would call sort of your intellectual claims, right, into this deeper, lived, experienced, viable abil uh, ability to fit your world, to develop your connectedness, to develop yourself. Both of those, I think, can plausibly be brought back together in the notion that you know, what we're talking about and, and, this, and then the, this just goes so well with the invocation of the term meta-heuristic, a heuristic for managing your heuristics. We can draw this together and this term together, meta-heuristic, right? We can draw this, right, all together with, well, having to do with realizing relevance.
this is invoked uh, 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 not not a, in, in terms of the theoretical account I've given, but the idea that zeroing in on relevant information is crucial to wisdom. This is invoked throughout uh, the article by Baltz and Stoniger. Let's be clear. I don't think they are explicitly making a case the way I am. What I'm saying is they're invoking ideas and making use of them that ultimately deeply presuppose the, the ability for relevance realization. Now, they have an account of the five criteria you need uh, in order to be wise. And the point about this is to try and specify what these meta heuristics are that bring about an excellence um, in, right, in our life, an, excellent, an orchestration of mind and virtue together so that we become excellent human beings, excellent persons. They try to specify this in terms of five criteria. The point of the criteria are these are, these are the features that are needed to judge someone wise. And also, these are features that can be empirically investigated. OK, so what are these criteria? So rich factual knowledge about the fundamental pragmatics of life, right? So this is, this is in some sense like Sophia. This person has a deep grasp of the facts, the, the principles of the, prag, the fundamental pragmatics of life. They also need rich procedural knowledge about the fundamental pragmatics of life. And this goes back to the McGee and Barber point, right, that wisdom is not so much what you know, but how you know. It's very much about knowing how to put these principles into practice, into process. Now, they, they, they of course, have now done propositional and procedural knowledge. I think they should have gone deeper. They obviously are going to need uh, participatory knowledge because they have to explain how we go through dramatic uh, developmental change because presumably qualitative change is what's needed for wisdom, hence the term excellence. And, and of course, they are missing the perspectival knowing that connects the procedural knowing to you know, specific contexts, situational awareness. OK, so that. I think is important. I think they're pointing towards this perspectival knowing and how it ultimately plugs into participatory when they invoke the next criteria. They call it uh, lifespan contextualism. Lifespan contextualism. Like I say, this is a kind of perspectival knowing. This is the, the way in which you're, you know, you're taking the big picture, your ability to zoom out, and then from that big picture, zoom in as needed, right? So it's this perspectival knowing. And that, I think, is very crucial. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with our capacities uh, for self-regulation. Uh, we've talked about that. <clears throat> now, the next one, I want, I want to state it, and then I want to challenge it. This is, they, ca they call it relativism of values and priorities, right? I find that a hard criterion to uh, be, be, be sort of tethered to. 
I've, if they're using this term carefully, I don't think that many of the people that I would regard as quintessentially wise were moral relativists. I do not think Socrates or Plato were moral relativists. I, I think they're clearly the opposite. I, I, I think it's unlikely that the Buddha is a moral, was a moral relativist or Jesus of Nazareth was a moral relativist. I think uh, we are falling prey to thinking that our liberal democratic values are constitutive of wisdom. I'm not arguing against these values. That is not what I am doing here. I'm arguing against tying the notion of wisdom to those values. I think what might be on offer here, what they're actually talking about, is a capacity for tolerance. And perhaps the way we can understand that then is instead of a kind of relativism, we can understand it in terms that we can apply to Socrates, of a fallibilism, which is a claim that you should never assert certainty. Right? We can, we can easily attribute that to Socrates and things analogous to Jesus' uh, regular condemnation of self-righteousness seems to be um, appropriate here. So a, a kind of fallibilism and then linked to something that you've heard me mention multiple times, humility. Right? Humility. A, a recognition, an appreciation of your status, your limits, etc. So if we bring in fallibilism and humility rather than requiring wise people to demonstrate moral relativism, I think we can plausibly apply this criteria uh, to many uh, exemplars of wisdom from the past. The, the fifth one, and I think this is very crucial, is recognition and management of uncertainty. Recognition and management of uncertainty. So this is to say, right, we are in the finitary predicament. Most of the time, we can't do algorithmic processing. We cannot pursue certainty. We have to act as best we can within, with, within unavoidable contexts of uncertainty. So you can see why I see why I think this theory is sort of dripping um, in the machinery of relevance realization. I think the term metaheuristic is very good. I think the meta uh, metaheuristic is something that coordinates between heuristics. It might be something like an optimization within a dynamical system, like I've argued, you know, trade-off between compression and particularization, things like that. They, at times, though, tend to talk about um, this metaheuristic as a form of expertise, and I've already made the criticism. I think that's a mistake. I think that understanding wisdom as expertise is to mislead us. Again, it causes us to overfocus on the important procedural knowledge to the exclusion of the perspectival and the participatory. It also confuses uh, you know, the context sensitivity with you know, being, being domain specific and we shouldn't do that. And I've made that argument, I'm not gonna make it again. Instead, I wanna point out that what they t tend to be arguing for 
is a, a very, very comprehensive kind of cognitive flexibility and, that, that, and adaptability. That your cognition is flexible enough that it can adapt itself to different situations in a very uh, efficacious manner. What's important is that they started to generate uh, some em empirical work. Well, what, how do you do this? Well, you, you basically train um, independent judges uh, to be able to evaluate these criteria in people's behavior, their spoken behavior, uh, right, things like that. Uh, and then what you do is you put people into various situations, often situations that might involve moral dilemmas, or other more practical challenges. And you get those people to relate on how they would deal with those difficult situations. You try to find some situations that we would prototypically do, th do this for. We would say for somebody who handled them well in that themselves in that situation, we would be quite happy with, a, with attributing wisdom to them. They'd say, yeah, if somebody managed this situation really well, that would be good evidence for me for calling them wise. Now, now what you do is reverse engineer that. Take those situations that, if solved successfully, would generally lead to the attribution of wisdom, give them to a bunch of people, evaluate how in the answers that people are giving, not just sort of vaguely how well the, they answer it, but do they answer it in a way that exemplifies these five criteria? And then you can judge how well people are doing in solving these problems. And so what you got was some of the first um, attempts uh, to start to empirically measure wisdom by putting people, I, I mean, see what they're doing? This is analogous on how we test intelligence and rationality. We give people a bunch of tests across situations and we try to see how they do and that's, and then we start to generate from that a measure of how wise they are. I, I, I think this is, as I said, this is just quintessentially important. So one, one of the things I want to bring out, um, they talked about the, the cognitive styles that are important uh, for being uh, wise. And <clears throat> that's, that is important, um, sort of a judicial style, somebody who's good at making judgments. Um, the reason why I'm not going into that detail is they're relying on sort of notions uh, from uh, Sternberg and others about particular kinds of styles. and I, I don't really have time to go into that in depth. So that, that would be a, a large chunk on itself. What, 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 it shows, what it shows is how important the, the, the capacity for good judgment is for wisdom. And we sort of knew that, but as I'm trying to, ar as I'm trying to argue, we're getting a sense of how, like in terms of relevance realization, right, a and um, the ability to zero in on relevant information, we're getting a sense of what that good judgment means. Now, one of the things I want to draw from Baltz and Stoninger, or one of the experimental results, because this points to more recent and important work by Igor Grossman, is they gave people uh, this experimental task in which they have to try and solve these problems, and they put them into three conditions. Um, in one condition, they could discuss the problem with a significant other before responding. 
In another condition, they could imagine a virtual or internal dialogue. Notice that. Ma imagine a virtual and internal dialogue. Remember the Stoics and internalizing Socrates? Right? Third condition, they were just given more time to think about it. And what they found is that the first and second group clearly outperformed group three. You're wiser if you talk to other people. And that's sort of like, duh. Yeah, but if it's duh, why do we carry around this bullshit mythology of complete individualism? So that's one interesting finding. This is, goes back to the platonic dialogue that in discussion with others, we get to a level of wisdom that we cannot get to on our own. Now, what was interesting, that's in itself an interesting, what was interesting is also there was no important difference between group one and group two. Talking to another person and imagining, simulating in your mind talking to another person, were just, that was just as good. If you can internalize other people, they can give you the metacognitive ability to overcome your biases. Now why this, I think, is important is I think this points to more recent work done by a colleague of mine, uh, Igor Grossman, and I've mentioned his work already, the Solomon effect. Solomon, of course, the biblical figure of wisdom, which is if you have, so what's going on with that talking with other people? Well, part of it, I think, is the Solomon effect. Right? If I describe a problem to you from the first person perspective, which I'm liable to do, especially in an individualistic culture like the, ours, right? I will tend to be very locked in because, again, remember, remember the whole thing about internalization? When I'm in a perspective, it's biasing me, and one of the things I can't see, be, my framing is often transparent to me. I can't see it. I'm seeing through it. And when I'm in the first person perspective, I'm sort of locked here in my perspective because it is my problem. Ah! If you get people to re-describe the same problem from the thir third person perspective, and notice the word I'm going to have, they often have an insight. They often notice something they hadn't noticed before. They pick up and make something salient, irrelevant, that wasn't salient or relevant from within their first person perspective. So moving to, moving outside and looking back through somebody's eyes from a third person perspective on your cognition can enhance your capacity for these wisdom tests. This is what I mean why Baltz and Staudinger, although they're not invoking it or theoretically discussing it, right, they are relying on perspectival knowing in their experimental work. So we're starting to make our way through these theories of wisdom. We've taken a look at Schwartz and Sharp. We've seen how the, the connection between wisdom and virtue is being established. Baltz and Staudinger are picking up on that. And they're starting to get us into some of the fundamental machinery of what it is to be a wise person. I want to continue that next time and also uh, bring up some important criticisms of the work of Bolton Sodinger. You've seen me already make one. I don't think that this ability should be understood as expertise. I'll make some other ones, and those criticisms will take us into the important seminal work on wisdom by Monica Ardelt. And then we'll also take a look at the work of Sternberg. And then I will return and propose or at least explain to you an account, a proposal made by myself and Leo Ferraro in 2013 about how to try and draw this together. 
in terms of this machinery that I've been advocating. And then I want to subject that theory, my own theory, um, to, I, I think, some pretty significant criticisms. And then point, uh, and I hope that will point us towards how we can then reintegrate the account of wisdom with the account, with the account of enlightenment. And ultimately, resituate us back with awakening from the meaning crisis. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Oh, yeah. Meow, 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 meow. Rough, rough, rough. Rough, rough, rough. Rough, rough, rough. Rough. All right, so we were at, um, we need a higher order ability that deals with wisdom. And you need wisdom to be wise in the sense of uh, you need to have these components of wisdom to be wise. So we talk, uh, Aristotle's distinction of wisdom between Sophia and phronesis. Mm-hmm. Two different words that connotate different aspects of wisdom. So you could, we're looking at Sophia, or right now we're looking at Sophia as theoretical and... Theoretical wisdom. And mm -hmm. uh, phronesis as practical, practical wisdom. So the virtues are in there, or at least this is the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what are their names? These guys that are making this, this argument. Um, where was that? I think that was on the previous Schwartz, Schwartz and Sharp, Sharp and Schwartz. Okay. Um, yeah, I just so the ability words. to be yeah. very contextually sensitive, to have good situ situational awareness, uh, perspectival. Uh, so knowing. I know where I was. So these guys, uh, Sharp and they resist um, the idea that phrenesis has is a rules having thing. Mm -hmm. They think that's, that's right. the world of Sophia, mm -hmm. um, and they think that it lead you know it leads to legislation, the making of more rules and laws, and more rules and laws on top of rules and laws. An effort to try and to specify virtues into rules. Yeah, yeah so we they, can confuse having laws for instilling virtues. Yeah, and yeah. when when you need to cultivate wisdom, you can't just put a law into effect and think that yeah. that's going to do the job. So there needs to be a balance. Yeah. So um, yeah. So they're actually arguing for a balancing between relevance, conflict, specification, development, or mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, and we'll get there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the question with legislation will it reduce the harm, but also will it make people less likely to pursue virtue? Yes. So, um, yes, yeah, so we need to know how to put principles into our the processes. Yeah. So the reason and why then imbue the processes with principles at the uh, same that's time. That's a little bit further on. Yeah. So. Yeah. So they tend to leave uh, Sophia out because of it being large. Well, them believing it being largely uh, propositional. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, a propositional claim. Um, now the critique here is: is we need yes to be sensitive to context. So mm -hmm. and we need the Sophia, the awareness of context. Mm -hmm. um, but we need context in specific and in general. So not just context within one thing, but context in multiple things right it can't um, just be domain specific and that's it's where the, be we need to put well. our principles into practice and yes. have practice principles principles that have been um 
you know, well maintained, checked, make sure that they're they still hold valid to mm-hmm. how life actually is and not the ideal of what you want life yeah. to be. Yeah, the um, processes are held to the principles that are creating the processes. Yeah. So and so basically, what we're arguing for at this point is that oppositional relationship to recognize that it's not gonna, it's not an either or here. Both of these need to be working mm-hmm. in tandem. Yeah. So for us to understand this, Schwartz and fellow, um, I guess, are arguing that uh, phrenesis and are combining phrenesis with a perspectival expertise, the -hmm. know how. Mm -hmm. But um, so the way the equivocation of expertise is good, but the actual term used, you know, scientifically is domain specific yeah, trained in a yeah. certain specific end yeah so we don't necessarily need expertise we need um which is only sensitive in one context we need mm-hmm. something that's sensitive in multiple contexts so this is a you know vervegi's argument against the idea of phrenesis and expertise yes yes um, and the argument for relevance realization that that's where his theory of relevance realization would fit in very well because they're looking for a metacognitive heuristic to explain for everything when they describe their schema. So it it fits very well there. So basically just don't confuse context sensitivity with expertise. That's right. Yeah. It's not just looking into one thing, but looking into all things. So it can't be expertise because the idea is to be sensitive to the concept context, like we were talking about before. Yeah. Because that, you know, expertise connotates, not having the best theory, but the best know-how, which is a domain general kind of thing, but we need something that is both domain specific and domain general, as we were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because an expertise in psychology is domain specific. You know, expert in one in one field, it doesn't transfer to another. So, yeah, yeah. So we but need we, something that accounts for, for But we need to be both. sensitive to the context so you can know when to mm-hmm. tell your wife that her butt looks big in that dress and when or in how to in the right <laughs> way yeah. because she said she needed your opinion. Yeah. So you need that context you need to be sensitive to context, but it's not a matter of being sensitive to only one issue within it. You need like you know, right, we got to look to wisdom, rationality, relevance, realization. You know, that, we can't confuse context sensitivity with expertise. Yeah, yeah. Alone, so, um, and we can't force virtue with rules either. They, they need development. So, phrenesis it doesn't count account for expertise alone. Um, yeah. And then now we get to the seminal psychological theory of wis- of wisdom um, that Balz and Stalliner Stallinger were talking about the meta heuristic. Um, mm-hmm a pragmatic to orchestrate mind and virtue towards excellence. Yeah, you so got, something that recognizes the connection between wisdom and virtue is basically what these mm-hmm. guys come along calling for. Yeah. So, um, the word pragmatic we got into, so there's the pragmatics as in the language like this, you, you're always saying more than you can convey within words. Right. Yeah. And then there's the pragmatism, which is, um, you evaluating the effectiveness of your, Proceed, uh, your propositional claim. claims yeah. in your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being like, well, I claim this, is it working? Yeah. You know, we'd say that would be, you know, that person is... So it's crag- pragmatic to recognize when there's something wrong mm-hmm. and then to fix it because knowing that you can change the world that you live in. Um, 
but it does you know situate our intellectual claims our understanding of the world into a viable worldview for us mm -hmm. so both of these yeah definitions point to the capacity for realizing relevance yeah. so there's some kind of relevance realization yeah. process going on here and that that must be the missing link that Vervakis put his finger on and god knows what happened after um the computer scientists working at the cutting edge of AI really start to grapple with what Verbeke's working with. And I know he is working with a lot of these guys. So, um, bolts, so here we are. Bolts so the, and Stottinger, the um, five criteria have five criteria. So the first one is the features that we need to be able to judge or investigate wisdom. Yeah. So the first one is a rich fundamental knowledge of the fundamental pragma pragmatics of life. Yeah. Like you gotta be able to, well, you gotta know the stuff to know about it yeah which would, in, would also include a rich procedural know it knowledge not just factual verveke's note adding this on here yeah 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 so exactly. let's include a you procedural the know-how not just the what but the how yeah you have to live the life to know the life right and a particip participatory knowledge yeah. should be added along in there as well yeah yeah you know how so, to do that with others so that and would, then the perspectival knowing would be yeah. included there as well but that's so that's two which is um and the, yeah. you need the pr procedural knowledge how to do it Mm -hmm. So the first one is you need to know what it is. Then mm -hmm. you need to know how to do it. And then um, lifespan contextualism. Which so, is the perspectival knowing. Yeah, and that's the... That's a capacity going, for self-regulation. Yeah, that's going out as big as you can and then also going back in and, and then being, being able, able to, to yeah, do that process. To be able to go zoom out and then zoom back in and regulate your understanding of where you are in, in the greater scheme and the greater cosmos and then the, the fourth one he has a bit of an issue with because it's like I, okay so the relativism of values and priorities. and priorities and john doesn't think that you know all the old greats were relative or you know moral relativists mm -hmm. um instead what john's arguing for for this to mean is a capacity for tolerance and uh what what is it that uh fallibilism fallibilism man that's a weird word fallibilism meaning to don't not, express certainty yeah to never assert certainty yeah yeah it's yeah. just um and then humility which mm -hmm. is recognition and appreciation of where you are and what your limits are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then the, the this fifth is recognition, recognition recognition and management of uncertainty yes which is basically just doing the best you can knowing you're in the context of uncertainty you cannot be certain yeah. about anything anything and we're in a constantly changing situation mm -hmm. as well so now just you... the recognition and the management of that yeah. uncertainty so these are the five criteria or the factors that are needed to be able to judge the level of wisdom in somebody or to be able to investigate wisdom mm -hmm. scientifically at all so i guess the argument that these guys are making is the levels of knowledge their capacity to contextualize where you are in in life your capacity for self-regulation uh the relativism of your so basically a capacity of tolerating change in your values and priorities to keep them balanced humility and recognizing your status and limits and recognition of your management of uncertainty Ma recognition and management of uncertainty wow but for vicky notes at this point Understanding wisdom as expertise indeed confuses the context sensitivity with being domain specific. So while they do argue, and th this is what's helpful, is for cognitive flexibility 
yeah. and thus adaptability to our environments. And they started doing empirical research to evaluate behaviors in various situations, how people then related on how they dealt with those experiments. Mm -hmm. And so he goes into some experiments at this point. Yeah, I only got the uh, last experiment. So it's uh, yeah. three groups. Uh, group one, you know, talk about an issue or a problem that the, they get the chance to talk to a significant other before responding. And the second group just imagines them having the internal dialogue and these two groups do better than the third group, which is just giving them more time to think about the problem. So it seems that we need others around us for wisdom, whether whether or not they're real or <laughs> simulated right. in your head. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like, you know, like practicing something in your head, you know, think about mm -hmm. it, dream about it, you know, and like actually go through the motions, yeah. whether it's shooting the, the you know, three for whatever reason. Or, it works. It's, yeah. yeah. The visualization of a discussion with an imaginary person works just as well as having another person. Yeah. That's because the Solomon effect. Through is... discussion itself, yeah, we get that Solomon effect and we get a level of wisdom we can't achieve on our own. So internalizing others gives us that metacognitive ability to counter our own biases. Yeah. And to see around our blocks in our frames. Yeah. And, and um, this. You know, um, this points to the group one and group two being better at the original wisdom test to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, just having, you know, somebody to talk to or doing this in your head will make you better at the previous test that was designed to test for wisdom. That's right. Yeah. So, even though the third group was given more time to think about the problems... The first group that had somebody else to talk to yeah. and bounce off of. And then the second group, which was allowed, encouraged, in fact, to imagine having someone else to talk else to talk to help solve the problem. They both did just as well as each other. Well, and, you know, the so, other one. so now we have ex experimental um, data to point to what, you know, people were talking about in the way back winds of you know the internal dialogue and you know like yeah not you just can going out the criteria you know not just going out into the marketplace mm -hmm. but you can also do it within your own mind you can internalize other people and reflect off it in particular if you know them well enough or are familiar well enough yeah like having, socrates you know, or jesus or buddha mm -hmm. or your grandfather or grandmother yeah or, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, a yeah, like a philosopher that anyone you that you cool, admire, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that's important for you know. Why maybe we should start teaching youngsters to start reading and have better role models and not internalizing the um, excuse me, but garbage that seems to be the popular fads yeah. nowadays for role models are. Yeah, how would my friend that disagrees with me with some things on some things politically? How would he? respond to me on this issue yeah what well you think that can be dangerous yeah. if you haven't trained yourself right because then you could put the straw man in place of of the actual person and internalize the straw man and well that's that's you don't want to internalize the straw man we don't want to make caricatures of one like another song. Don't but it is it, but if you're looking man. for advice on how to understand yeah. or ha say you had to do a debate counter to a position you'd normally hold you could yeah draw up somebody that you know, you would have actually to, does hold that view that you know that you respect, even though you disagree with them. And you'd have to be, be responsible well, enough to steal man there. What would of the they argument. say here? Why? Why do they believe this? And because if yeah. you can find where somebody's values originate from, 
then you can understand how and why the you know you can understand why they're arguing from their perspective and how to argue then from that perspective indeed indeed yeah so that's, that's about the end of that i'll have to that's all i had yeah he went in depth to, talking yeah, about the experiments um but it's it's interesting that we are finding ways to be able to understand how wisdom operates in the in the human mind. Yeah. So the the, the breakdown is basically experiment one was testing for wisdom. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a pretty accurate test. And then experiment two, which is is figuring out which conditions enhance the ability to yeah. and trying to merely become better at test one and two. Do it. And, they, and so one has to be and so through doing these tests you find out that yeah actually talking to others or internalizing the talking to others does way better than just having more time that's so it's more efficient yeah, yeah. while well, proving that there's a well they're german of course efficiency is their deal that's yeah, the but, <laughs> you know like, ha- yeah, having a, a, an ultimate a, transcendent authority or or somebody that you can relate through to the ineffable, the unknowable, um, by like Jesus Christ or somebody like that. That yeah. that you can see why that helps people. Maybe that's that's what they mean by you know have a personal. Here's relationship an ultimate with example. Jesus, instead of like you yeah. know this idea. What that would you, Jesus do? You know, to ask, you can see why that that is a helpful question. Or what would Buddha or Socrates, if you prefer? But Jesus is a great example. It's the best one that humans have come up with yet that we know of. Yeah, I guess we could debate on that, but it's he's a pretty darn good example. I mean, you know, there's there's worse examples out habit. there. But anywho, he encompasses the hero, the wizard, the saint, the, you know, the servant, the creator, creative, the architect. You know, he's a carpenter. He's all these different archetypes rolled into one. He's the martyr. Also, the stranger because he disappeared forever. Yeah, and well, for a long freaking time, and then well, what do you do? You travel the world. He's just a wandering stranger, gathering. You know, I, I don't think he was just walking around because he was walking around. You know, you you go talk to people, you figure out things. You fig- you know, he was on a quest. He was on. He uh, had a question, and he was on a quest. He was on a deep inner quest. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he traveled across the desert. Probably did meet some people, probably sat in some caves for long periods of time. And... Well, and you know, we're still unearthing things, you know, that are telling us about our past. And there are, you know, there is proof that there was a, you know, there was a guy that was Jesus. And there's proof that he's been in a lot of places through obscure writings and other stuff like that of like some dude coming out of some place that really matched the description of this Jesus guy. But, they, you know, they well, there had to have been somebody like that to inspire yeah. these stories of this selfless human being that was a revolution. Yeah. Of, and, you know, in those cultures in those times. Because he was saying that even the poorest people mattered, even the most yeah. forgotten people, you know, the uh, the orphans. Yeah, and he, you know, it, it's this idea of sticking up for or not sticking up for, but really lifting up the lowest without necessarily having to rip down the highest mm-hmm. either because he was not necessarily, 
you know, condemning of rich people for being rich. It was more of the behaviors that you did, maybe how you got there, how you treat other people. But, you know, it's like, yeah, no, you're all the same in the eyes of God. And the more, you know, the more you hold on to. And God's love is perfected through all of yeah, all of you, yeah, all people. You are all persons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to go hang up, you know, I'm going to die for you so you can, you know, forgive yourself because I forgived you. So go ahead and start doing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'm just, I'm not hanging out here for nothing, so you it know? it basically means that no matter how much you've erred in life, you can always start fresh and try to be a better person. You know, right here, right now, it's never too late yeah. to save yourself and to start being a better person, to be a more loving human being. And I love that even the prince and the king and the emperor is subservient to a higher ideal like there's this ultimate ideal of goodness that we all must aspire to or else society will fall apart <laughs> that's kind of the general gist of the stories so um I, I you know we'll, we'll be in a, a turmoil of inner and outer hell we'll make a hell of our own inner lives and our outer worlds you know as individuals and as societies Yeah, so you notice that we tend to call our our or excuse me our honorifics for, um, you know, like royalty or people in the church is like you know father or sire, which hmm. sire is father, or um, various different languages. We we place the highest regard on parenthood and higher ends of parenthood. You have the you know the 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 Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, but God is all of them, mm -hmm. kind of deal. And it's there's a parental relationship, you know, in the case of God, I think it was in Ezekiel. But um, it's a hierarchy of relationship. But that, at that what point in time? Elder is always more knowledgeable than you are. And well, looks over you. And... But that so that quote I sent you is parents sacrifice their lives for the lives of their children. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why, you know, like parenthood the idea seems of Christ to be insanely important well, to deep. us. There's, yeah. yeah. So and, you know, God, uh, God, the father sacrificing God, the son witnessed by the Holy Spirit. His for life us, serves the children of his, God. his life acts as his sacrifice, as his service to us to be able to have a way to relate with the unknowable infinite nature of something divine like a god an omnipresent being by which this universe was born how can a, a tiny little human relate with that but by an aspect of itself that incarnated into human flesh and then basically lived in sacrifice as a way of being for us even in the face of ultimate torture um continued to express that way of unconditional love well ultimately we you know we do many reflections of that within our family which family is the most powerful institution on the planet um somehow there's the core there but we do this within our own family you know like the mother's sacrifice which is you raise the child mm -hmm. this person and in order to really make the person a person is to sacrifice them to the freaking world so that's the in the trinity the father's what the father is doing by sacrificing the son. For them to be able to, be able to ever li li 
learn to be independent yeah. and self-sufficient. So these stories have to be pushed out at some point. Yeah. So yeah, I see what you mean. And yeah. these these story the the way we come up with these symbols and these story or we do this to hold on to massive amounts of information and meaning in a simple enough way that can be in some cases just verbally transferred for generations because mm. it's so important that's what these and, old and stories and do maybe for us. not necessarily the story for itself and what we call the people and who we think they are and this that or the other right but what was going on there what you know how does it apply to your life what insight can you gain from it and if it's a powerful story and you know and the thing with the bible is is it's a we, it's a it's a mash of yes historical like i mean you can plot it out you can find the places you can actually dig things up and find that there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also this this myth around it as well and mm -hmm. a myth is a, a useful tool teaching you tool know, yeah, yeah the allegory and to hold on to massive amounts talking of about concepts concepts that yeah. are so deep that you all you can do is a big use a big metaphor like a story to mm -hmm express the idea out in a way that people can understand and relate to because these yeah. are lessons that help humans address perennial recurring problems and you can't that always return through history to yeah, people and you can't drift too far from like if you want something really powerful like this you can't drift so what did we call it in here it was um um you gotta ah you gotta be pragmatic Oh, yeah, of course. you got to be able to if you drift to like if the myth drifts too far from the actual reality mm -hmm. and and so in the case of the bible if it drifts too far from history then it's just a wishy-washy myth that doesn't actually exist it's got to keep up life. with the times right same thing with applying yeah. things to yourself if your myth is too far from reality in your daily life your beliefs then it's not useful yeah it's probably best to evaluate yourself and, and yeah. move on um yeah so and what is a myth a tool but you need to make sure that you use your tools properly don't let the screwdriver drive you right you drive right. the screw not yeah. the other way around yeah because what are we trying to use religion for are we using using it to try and compete with science about how old the earth is literally or are we trying to enunciate describe a way of being in the world not proclaim our beliefs and use faith as just a mere belief in something that we say that we believe and that makes us and the also thing. you can, you can but that we're or and we're involving ourselves in a way of being you in can't the world. you can't have faith and be certain at the same time because faith Correct. naturally is something you have in uncertainty yeah yeah we got to remember to think think of faith as faithfulness what it means to have faith is to be faithful to well, also the and, way of being that and Jesus also, embodied. And, and also on the other end, the idea is like, well, no, you don't know and you can't know. But even within that, I still am happy, you know, I'm right. holding this. Yeah, but I um, am the way, the truth, and because the life. Because your faith can be broken. This is the way of being. I'm exhibiting this way of being for you. Well, that's, that's how right. faithfulness is how you show that's faith. That's how you show faith. Because you can't ever be certain. Yeah, faith that's, is the being of it. Faithfulness is the, is that commitment. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's the process of that commitment. And, and what we're talking about in here, you know, is like, you can't be certain. Uh, what's the term called? Uh, I'm looking for the term that we used in here. Um, uh, 
but basically yeah it's like you can't be certain and, and literally physically literally metaphorically you cannot be certain about anything your heuristics can be very good and you mm -hmm. can be mostly accurate about mm -hmm. most things but you can't be 100 percent certain yeah. about anything yeah you know even so this check of like re-understanding mm -hmm. what rationality actually is mm -hmm. That we've gained through this series it's it's helping check science and spirituality because we see this occurring yeah. on both sides well so it's you, the problem of ego well you you brought up uh you know like you know the certainty of like how how old the planet is it's like well science doesn't even really know we have an educated you know guess uh, well yeah. and i won't say it's, it's a guess pretty exact it's pretty close but we don't know but you know we thought that we we're actually finding out the universe might be a lot freaking older than it actually is as far as their mm -hmm. measurements go and science isn't to say this is what it is it's more of just say well this is as close as we can as approximate we can it. get until somebody proves me wrong and we get a little bit closer and our measuring devices yeah gain more resolution yeah, you know, because there seems to be infinite resolution to look into any. Well, you can look that, in yeah. or look out. You know, that's yeah. the we keep seeing more. Further we go, you know, it's funny that the farthest. So, so we're building another large hydron collider. I heard. Cool. Well, put it yeah. on the other side of the planet and spin them both up at the keep same time. Let's see what happens. Let's see how small we can go. Well, what's interesting is, in order to look up and out and see like the farthest galaxies you're looking at the tiniest speck of degree range you know you're not looking at something like this mm -hmm. that that telescope isn't looking at something like this it's looking at something freaking tiny mm -hmm. but within that super tiny is so much big stuff so you're zooming in to zoom out and then the other end when you're looking at the smallest smallest stuff you got to build this like huge thing that Giant like thing. <laughs> goes to the maximum of speeds known to man and then smashes two things together. And then you're only looking at like the residual of something that happened mm -hmm. in a pattern. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in order to zoom in, you know, zoom in and, and make the end big, you still got to go to a tiny itty bitty little window. Yeah. So either way, in or out, we're, we're observing the world through tiny little windows. <laughs> right. Um, and actually usually big really things. Really high-powered in giant instruments. Yeah. <laughs> well, even, you know, like... The further, the bigger. Even the space telescope, you know, that thing is still pretty freaking big. But our our, um, our satellite telescopes, like, we turn, we turn the world into a telescope with multiple mm -hmm. different locations. With the radio telescopes, so yeah. So to, to a really big thing to look at. Something really tiny that has really big things in it. Yeah, it's freaking crazy. It's awesome how yeah, it's awesome how we <laughs> out do in, that. Out in, out in, in, out at the same time. Oh, there's there's something the in here for that too. Is doing relevance realization. Uh, lifespan contextualism, big picture, little picture, big picture, little picture, big picture, mm -hmm. little picture, little picture, big picture, big picture in the little picture. Everything's in little pictures, but they're big pictures. <laughs> <laughs> That's big. That's huge. I know, right? It's weird. A little big something for you yeah so with i was going to say this earlier um at the beginning about um you know like we 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 know that there are electrons and they can pass electricity and you know we know that like the electron moves from you know an outer shell to an inner shell and does this but then when you do this it goes from an inner shell to an outer shell and it does this but we don't know why we can always get closer and closer to, you know, okay, well, 
the electron jumps to the outer shell because we put in this amount of stimulus or, or whatever, you know, we shot a fo photon at it or like added something into it or something or whatever it is, or heated it up. Um, why does but that we do don't it? know why yeah. heating it up or doing those things makes it do that. Do that, no. Well, but then we go further and be like, well, because there's so much of you know this within the shell, so it has to because of the extra. Okay, yeah, but, but why? Why is that the case? Well, why why does a higher level of complexity sometimes emerge from two things where that new higher order of well, complexity could never have been imagined? What's the prime? What's the prime driver? How do cells that don't know how to respirate combine in order? to become tissues that can respirate. Well, you know, you, like uh, on that level, you could probably, you know, get pretty far down into the weeds of why, but like anything. Okay. So yeah. why, why does water fill the shape of whatever it's in? Why do gases spread out as much as they possibly can in the space? Cause provided? there's like a ton of water in this air right now. If you turned all the H2. And... But like, why would it fit? Why doesn't it just, you know, like, stick to one side why does it feel equally yeah, well yeah. okay you can go even further but it's like why why do the fundamental facts of reality fact the way they fact <laughs> why do you need a hole to put something why in? is it why is reality you know, tuned this way it, it, yeah you know you've got a hole and if you want to put something you know in something you need to have a hole to put it in well why can't you just put something in something without putting a hole in it why well, is... if you did that, it would be mixing then. But, you know, why is that? We still... Can... Why are some parts of space solid? Yeah, well, we don't know the prime the prime driver of... We can look... We're always looking at the product of something. Mm -hmm. We're never looking at what's behind it mm -hmm. producing. What is it. that law of emergence that causes all of that to happen? Yeah, in that way, specifically yeah. under those conditions yeah. and why... You Why know, do things? But we can still observe it, and we can still use it without mm -hmm. understanding. We can replicate. It. Yeah, yeah. It's, and but we don't understand why there is a law of emergence we just that causes it. reverse engineer it. And that's yeah. kind of what you know, Verveke and others have been doing with mm -hmm. you know the psyche, the group psyche, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. that society, with mm -hmm. actually how the brain works with all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. Well, asking the why. How far can we go down into the why? we'll still never get to the complete why because we're still kind of going why do we realize what's relevant in the way that we do and right <laughs> well, maybe we can at least try and aim the greatest minds yeah on our planet that the people that are have dedicated their lives to try and understand human psychology individual and group psychology to help and address this meaning crisis which does seem to be at the fulcrum or at the crux yeah then maybe the locus of the meta crisis you know if we can help solve the meaning crisis think, we ameliorate the yeah, rest of the I, myriad interacting crisis that the crises that the species is now facing and just because we'll never become perfect and know it all and do that stuff doesn't mean we shouldn't try no it's at least the right direction to lean into you know yeah. even if it's a point zero 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 one percent chance of success. We got to still be careful about still how we get anyway. there because you know we've learned you know scientists can be some pretty um, amoral people, and I don't mean bad morals. I just mean like no morals. You we know, have to so be very careful. We have to be mindful. We have to learn from the lessons yeah. of, and, of our past and start practicing the procedures and the, you know the ways to cultivate wisdom yeah, and yeah. Uh, practicing and checking back in and practicing and making sure everything's 
yeah good with yourself yeah. as well as everybody else and make make lines that you will not cross um like if you particularly with dealing with amen to that you know, man we got to start doing more of that in our lives we've lost track of these things and this is how we can develop our virtues yeah. and be virtuous by attending and holding to those virtues yeah. helping encourage and inspire it and others just through the living of them and uh yeah so step by step we can get somewhere with this we can i think find a way to help revive christ's way that buddha way in this world again yep, yep. that's the hope that is the name of the game that is the plan fam well we love you guys this has been another good one and uh apologies for missing you guys the last couple you know we we have lives and other things going on and we you know we forewarned everyone getting into the winter you know autumn and winter yeah, and it's you know things were going to slow down for us it's flu and vid season so a little bit with the podcast <laughs> while we got caught up with other life things going on and i got sick twi- twice back to back i was like you know when you get like sick for the first time in winter and you're like yeah okay that's good i'm gonna well, be finally good got me last now, week but, uh, man i got hit by two different t- but you know hey such as life you got to live with the microbes you got because if you don't got them well right yeah this is true man they're part of us well know. they are now. walking talking bacteria yeah um actually there's a, just trying to have a good relationship with all the bacteria there's a theory that the reason why humans are the way they are has a lot to do with the viruses we've gotten through our own evolution that you know have changed us and also mm-hmm. forced us to change you know, we actually might have like actual virus DNA that makes up a more, wow. every creature, though, because, you know, if you are alive, you know, well, everything animal. is adapting to everything and no. else around it. Nature wow. does not care. Nature is God so cares. trippy. If you just but stop, nature doesn't care. Yeah. Just stop and look at the world and let it just be new to you. And, you know, like you can do this with a tree or any animal that you see going by, just take the word tree off of a tree in your mind when you see it and see that strange organism anew, just as it is, as though you just landed on this alien alien planet. And there it is. There's this thing. And look at the way it grows and fractals out into the sky. And we know how it fractals out underneath the ground as well. And Just imagine what it's doing, how it's like growing towards this thing that we call a sun this bright massively huge giant burning ball of magma like pure plasma just all the time always comes back every morning no matter what we do it always that would be continues to come back and warm the earth and bring light back that'd be a really good grow story grow the life have an alien species like an alien protagonist that its species grew up in in one of the vast huge voids in our universe that we have i mean voids where you'll never see light within these voids because they're so big Whoa, the so light it doesn't know about to... stars even no because they forgot their history because you know they you know went out on whatever colony ships and you know warped into this void and things broke down and we're talking about thousands of years later just living out in space with the technology finally rediscovering some dense gases around it on the and getting, space they're in they can't see any stars and then getting beamed to earth and seeing and you know having no concept trees grass other critters and what are crittering around on your ship you know like Whoa. and then describing and basically just be the describing nature and everything as 
somebody who has never experienced any of that would see it, right? And that would be a good practice in writing this story to get yourself into how would you describe or how would you experience the world without the word for it, without the context for it? Because mm-hmm. a word gives certain context. You know, you say yeah. tree, you've got oak tree, maple tree, but the context is tree. Yeah. Right. You can do it too, because you can take yeah. away not just the word, but the idea of that kind of placeholder tree that we all have mm-hmm. for trees. Like you're going by hundreds of thousands of trees a day sometimes, it feels like, you know, going down the highway and there's just zooming by. So it's just like tree, tree, tree. But if you really stop and look at any one tree, it's this really complex, sophisticated being. And every single one is original and quite different. And when when you look at it just anew, you know, naked eyes, it's, it's this profound thing that you can only experience. And that when you can try and put it into words or put yeah. it you know, into a poem or a song or something like that. But, you know, it's, but it's something, it's something deeply profound, it's, familiar it's, yet alien at once. I mean, and it's before the, it's the recall before the naming, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that helps us see with eyes of wonder again. Like when we were young, when we were kids, and you see that wonder in a child's eyes all the time. We can always possess that wonder and that natural affinity for life, that real openness, taking in all the information, because we tend to boil things down into like kind of low-resolution placeholders. There's Mm -hmm. my low-resolution idea of a tree to watch out for that while I'm driving. But you can actually still do everything you need to do and see the world fully. Without those placeholders, those little icons that we put in place, we do it for people, you know. We do it for it, objects. It, it's and... interesting. Um, smells, right? And we love smells as humans. You can smell something, and it can flood you with an, the exact feeling of an entire memory without mm. going through the timeline of the memory and the word. It's our strongest sense, yet our sense of smell is so weak compared to dogs and cats. And yeah, well, it's our brain dedicates uh, quite the amount of brain power to the sense of smell. And, well, th- that makes sense because the and they f- do. They bring us those f- memories back, that sense of place. Well, before the eyeball or the ear, there was the chemical receptor. Hmm. It, like, you know, the mm-hmm. amoebas, they have that makes sense. basic chemical yeah. receptors around them so they can, you know, basically hot, cold, tell where things are. And then it just so gets it's the most, most developed. Yeah, our sense yeah. of smell is definitely the, the longest developing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, except for our touch. Um, yeah, so touch smell, is, and, and smell and taste t- go in tandem. Direct touch is, is definitely um, probably like the oldest as far as species go because, you know, it's just things bumping around. And then when it gets touched, mechanical action Signal, happens. A response. You know, yeah. that doesn't go much further than, you know, whatever. But yeah, uh, and also touch, like, you know, um, uh, touch is one of our most sensitive. Well, our brain, our brain. That's the point of having our, emotions. <laughs> well, have you seen the, the homunculus of the brain? So it shows a man and how much yeah, space yeah. our brain uses according to what oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. Touch just in itself. You know how much you have for your hands and your mouth. Mm-hmm. And you know why babies put things in their mouth because there's yeah. a, like you know way more neurons in there and they for can touch. Fi- yeah. and they can figure things out and then use their chemical receptors. Mm-hmm. I guarantee. Everyone here, you know what a boot or a shoe or a flip-flop tastes like? Well, You know why? And you didn't, you're like, you well, remember. I can't remember. I can't remember ever <laughs> putting remember. a boot in my mouth. But as a baby, at one point in time, there was a shoe or a flip-flop <laughs> or a boot that went in your mouth. 
and logged. When you said flip flop, I got a taste that reminds me of like <laughs> rubber, mm -hmm. the the rubber eraser on a pencil. Yeah, I remember. I must have eaten some, yeah. at least bitten to one flop. It's in my time. Yeah. Oh, well, it the, happened. And so you don't have the memory of doing it logged in your head. No. Do you have? It, it's just weird. And you can imagine the sensation of the smell. At least you can get pretty. Yeah. Pretty damn close. Yeah. You know, like if I say leather, you know, leather tastes like pennies. You know what pennies taste like. Mm. It's funny, like how many things you can go through that you're like, ah, oh, I'd never put that in my mouth. You know what a public restroom doorknob tastes like. Ew. Well, Don't at, go there. At one point in time, you've put something similar enough to that in your mouth, and then you have enough associated memories from public bathrooms to put the two I can't get that one. That makes me feel pretty good about myself. Yeah. I didn't lick any public bathroom doorknobs as a kid if you think about it though you could put together actually a good profile of what that thing would taste like if i wanted to think about it yeah mm -hmm. but i think my brain did a good job putting up a mental block and being like nope and not everybody's as super sensitive i'm, I'm super sensitive to smell and taste and stuff like that that's just I don't know. dude i lost so much oh, of my man. smell from covid oh, when i had covid a couple years back it's still slowly rebuilding itself to this day yeah well, at least you remember what since a, the smell uh, is remapping it. At least you remember what a flip flop tastes like. Once you get it all back, you should taste a flip flop and make sure. I can it's imagine, almost, mm -hmm. the idea of the sensation of the smell, but I can't quite. Yeah, it's not but a, something like yeah, a racer on a pencil. Mm -hmm. I think it's close to it. Yeah, yeah, some kind of weird rubber. Yeah, the human brain it just works so funny. It's a funky thing. Yeah, the fact that we can describe what something tastes like to somebody. And have them eat it and not be completely surprised about what it tastes like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's it's awesome. You know, it's like, well, it has a sweet, musky aroma to it with a, uh, you know, a sharp tang of maybe like lemon or, you know, you know still referential. Yeah, but you but can notice can still... like the notes of chocolate in your coffee or wine well, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, you all know. that. Um, yeah, oh yeah, with wine, you know, they've got stuff like saddle leather is one of the flavors of you know like when you taste wine and mm -hmm. all that stuff mm -hmm. uh mushroom uh cork oh yeah you know, like a yeah. bunch of random flavors and stuff like you know um and then we have words to describe th you know even further astringent you know what that tastes like you know just mm. even by the sound of the name astringent yeah, it's like yeah. It's tastes like something that's good for you but you don't like you know that you probably rub onto yourself <laughs> right. you know, yeah like some medicinal saying. yeah yep. yeah actually that's one of the words to uh, synonyms for astringent is medicinal yeah yeah isn't that weird also how we can say words in different ways and then it's like medicinal mm -hmm. medicinal or if there's not a real oh yeah right medicinal <laughs> but the emphasis on the wrong syllable yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Emphasis. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and the fact that the, us primate, you know, just being advanced primates as we are, but primates that can just have fun. Not, oh, the, not the just whole with sounds, but making like, mouth yeah. sounds to communicate. Then is yeah. pretty wild, and how fast we can get skilled at any different kind of task. You know, I, we went through a lot in our primate evolution, but it's hard to account for some of the strange skill sets that we come up with mm. like you know speed chess or yeah hyper you know, hyper specialization hyper specialization yeah. is 
gets pretty far out there. It's I, I think it's, it's our wild. communal nature and taking care of each other that allows that to happen because yeah. hyper specialized species tend to die. So a hyper-specialized person without other people that are more generalized mm. will tend to die. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Like if you're really, if you can't see very far, but you can see up close and you're really good at making tools. Yeah. If, if you're by yourself, you're more likely to get eaten by something because you can't see it and you're not very strong. But if you're with others, you can make them better and, and they can yeah. fill. And that's, that's where it's like, we need people. That's another thing being communal creatures is deeply deeply ingrained much like our senses so, you know our, our smell like this well this yeah we're not just intelligent alone yeah we're intelligent as a species together it turns out and every part of our intelligence yeah. is building off of things that we've yeah. learned from others and gained from others or it's part of our biology already everything from our language and our ideas to how we think and approach things is something that we're learning from all that came before us and, like, and we're putting our own unique spin on it and adding to that story. Yeah, a sad thought came to mind. Like, there are quite a few people that aren't don't have the ability to inter like inner monologue, hmm. like talk in their head. Hmm. So that removes one of the, you know, I won't say shortcuts, but efficiency providers that, like, you know, being able to talk in your head and do that. Um, that can also be... Um, something that can be quite a but restriction, we have groups a restriction because you can get addicted mm -hmm. to identifying with the uh, with the thought i would like to see an experiment to i have it's not a theory it's barely a hypothesis but maybe measure like you know you have uh what do you call it not social antisocial, but um uh, extrovert and introvert right mm -hmm. like people who prefer the company of people i'd like to see if those without inner monologue people tend to be more extroverted and around people and talking and, you know, so, bouncing man. things yeah. off yeah. Um, more than, say, like introverted people, like and measure like uh, how yeah. powerful of an inner monologue do they have and see where they go in as far as being uh, extrovert or be... introvert. That'd be well, first, you have to figure out how to test for the, the power of the inner monologue and not. That's a problem I haven't even given any thought to. <laughs> like, how, yeah, how you would scale that? Yeah, how yeah. How would you measure it? How would you put a ruler to it and do it accurately? Yeah. There's probably some tests that are already made that. It's going to be that, pretty general, that, but yeah, you can get some idea from it, but it's not going to be. You, you know, could, I mean, it's, you could just probably ask. It's going to be sub if you ask enough people. Like, everyone's hey, answers are going to be subjective. So how you how you define the scaling is going to be very important and yeah, it's going to be hard to get very super specific with it no matter yeah, what, what you do que what questions do you ask the people because like yeah because yeah, it's hard to say how many thoughts do you have a minute or every every yeah. 10 seconds you you're basically asking questions like how busy does your mind feel you know how much are you talking to yourself in your mind or you could, a lot sometimes you know it's going to be very general or, or you could ask them like you know like if you were talking to your dad um about something more like more in depth than just like if you did something stupid or something like that but something in depth what would he say i wonder if that would be a good test for like inter inner monologue because you kind of have to go through that and go well instead of he would be pissed it's like no what would he say you know mm. um and you could probably gauge um how developed at least how is, at how least, yeah like how developed their inner monologue you know, i guess because if you, you somebody with a really good inner monologue would be like, 
Well, I told you not to do it, and you did it. How'd you feel about it? <laughs> and, you know, would, like, mimic them completely and have their mannerisms down right. because you, you run that through your head. The people yeah, have that. Yeah. The people who do the best impersonations are the ones who can internalize the sound in their head and then figure out how to Their mirror work. neurons are firing. Yeah. Yeah. That All makes right. sense. Yeah. That just interesting experiment. Hey, if any of you guys are scientifically minded and you have, um, you know, that government research money and you want to, like, do whatever you got to do to, like, prove that you're worth your salt to get your degree and that's one of the things you can do, hey, go for it. That would be a fun experiment. <laughs> Testing the inner monologue to... Uh, social persuasion matrix you know see if there's a correlation between the two mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i like it because that would solve a problem of like you know like well uh if people don't have inner monologues how do they deal with their problems and if you have an isolated person that doesn't really have an inner monologuing capability you need to figure out how to get them around other people if they want to better themselves yeah you know yeah and see if it's possible for them to even to develop an inner monologue. And if mm -hmm. not, then, yeah, they definitely need to be socializing or probably with people with that shared goal I mentality. Think, I think reading would probably help, too, because then they're able Re to. Writing, journaling can help yeah, a lot yeah, for ev yeah. everybody. Yeah. We need to be able to put our ideas out there to be able to think them, th think them through and understand them. Yeah, well, you particularly know. to remember them over time. Which, mm -hmm. You know, that's what uh, literacy is good for. You know, being able to do that over time. This is the truth. So everybody should strive to be as literate as they can and try to help other people be as literate as they can. Seems like a valid goal. Yeah. And not uh, Fierian literacy, because that guy was a, a commie kook, uh, but, uh, which is, you know, uh, social, political literacy, not knowing how to read and reason your thoughts and put together sentence structures that can convey things to other people. So you got to know what you need to do. You know, to be Rabbit holes uh, to yeah. avoid. I don't know. You know it's, a good it's a good rabbit hole to go down if you want to understand what's going on in our schooling system. Uh, but Oh, that though. Yeah, yeah. truth. Yeah, that's, it's, it's yeah like don't go stuff. down the rabbit hole just automatically. Believe in everything you read. You're looking at it to understand it with a critical eye. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. My man, thank you, fam, for joining us. Mm -hmm. Make sure to smash the like and subscribe if you guys are enjoying and share the love with John Verveke as well. And uh, look for us next time studying the theories theories of wisdom in episode 44 next week we'll be getting together we're going to be pushing for 6 p.m we're going to continue to test out starting times here but probably end up settling around six like six and then be done by 8 30 yeah, yeah. Se seven today because we we're running a little bit late and we had to get things together but look for us uh six next week or just catch us on uh the flip side after the live stream anytime here on YouTube and always on Spotify and Stitcher and Apple and Google Podcasts and all those places. Thank you guys for joining us. Make sure to rate this podcast and help us reach more people by commenting and sharing with your friends and family. And happy holidays. Happy all holidays. It's that time of year. Be safe out there. Stay bright. Peace. See you guys next time. Meow.